Steve and Kevin review Battle for Zendikar for Vintage on episode 48 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 48 of So Many Insane Plays, our Battle for Zendikar review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback at Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. We have a few tournament announcements to start the show this week. We have some upcoming tournaments. There's a Team Serious Open at Eternal Games in Warren, Michigan on October 17, which I know a handful of area players will be at. So it should be good attendance that time. I expect to be there myself. Steve, what do you have coming up on the West Coast? So the very next day, we've got an old school magic event at Eudaimonia. That'll be October 18th. So be sure to show up for that. And um, we'll post the announcements on the Mandarin. And we'll also post the announcements on the list here. But that's going to be really fun. And then we've got a vintage event in November. I believe November 15th. The same place. So come support Eternal in the Bay and show up. And we have still plans for an upcoming old school podcast, so it might come out a little bit after that event, give or take. Yeah, this uh, set just snuck up on us, so we're coming to back here first. It's true, it's true. One of the most important announcements, Kevin, is an open letter that Rich Shea and I composed and published on Reddit. Uh, How far we've come that now Reddit is our primary venue for publishing. It's the sign of the times, I guess. But anyway, Rich Shea and I took about three weeks, maybe even longer, to to edit, refine, and compose this letter. I mean, for a number of reasons. But the thrust of the letter is really how Wizards of the Coast can prove Magic Online to better serve vintage players in the vintage community and improve the overall vintage experience. But, um, you know, there are so many different things that we could touch on or could touch on that we considered including, but ultimately we came down to basically four or five recommendations. And the main one and the most important one is that we feel that Magic Online should uh, offer more high-level opportunities for big vintage tournaments. And that's really the promise of the of the format, the platform, right? Right. And, you know, Wizards of the Coast took away premier events, which were, you know, 32-plus player events. They took away the, the 16 minimum dailies. Now they're eight-player minimum. And they had one, in the entire time that vintage has been legal on Magic Online, they've had one big vintage event, which is the holiday festival. And it seemed to me that if... If the goal of Magic Online is to really create a vibrant, healthy, and sustainable platform for vintage play, it's got to have attractive tournaments for vintage players, which means that there needs to be, in our opinion, in my opinion, monthly event that's attractive and a quarterly or at least semi-annually big, big event. And so people can find that letter. It's been posted all over the internet. We'll post a, a link to it in, in our show notes, but it's called Suggestions for Improving Vintage on Magic Online. And, you know, it, it's, it's weird to me, but surprisingly, some of our, uh, we've gotten some controversial responses and apparently the recommendations that we advanced aren't all that, you know, clear cut in terms of what people people feel about it. Um, you know, I would think that no one would complain about a, a suggestion that we have more big scale, large scale vintage events on Magic Online. But there doesn't seem to be the unanimity unanimity that I would have anticipated. <laughs> Do you have any reaction, any response to that or thoughts? Well, about that? per your last point, my observation from the community discussion around it has been a lot of cynicism. There's just a lot of yeah. players, vintage and otherwise, who are very, very skeptical about 
their ability to really drive the attractiveness and subsequently the attendance of vintage online, you know, anymore. So um, my reaction is entirely as an outsider, basically, to the online medium. And I have seen all of the the hemming and hawing and all the sturm and drawing about it over the past several years. Uh, All I can say is that almost everything I've heard since the most recent batch of changes has been entirely negative. And so I'm in favor, (laughs) like you, I'm in favor of taking steps to to promote the format, be it through... uh, discrete technical changes in the software or policy changes or tournament support or all of the above but right. every little bit's going to help at this point yeah i mean it, it's actually baffling to me i mean the holiday vintage festival was a huge success you had to actually qualify to get into it mm-hmm. and we had over 110 players and it you know i mean it was so much fun it was just playing a big vintage tournament from your home why would they not replicate that it's it's a it's not a zero-sum game it's not like there's a, a, a store where you have to have tables and chairs and mm-hmm. space, and you can only hold so many tournaments at a time. I mean, I, I'm, I'm completely ignorant of the, the programming of the software, but it's, it does, couldn't you just say, hey, we're going to announce a 150-player tournament, and we're going to give some great prizes, and it's going to be held, you know, December 15th, yeah. and, and roll right, you know? I mean, I just don't get why that's that's not a thing. I, you know, a big quarterly event. I'm with you. I... I don't want to make assumptions about what it takes to organize a tournament. And I use organize in quotes for Magic Online. Exactly. I mean, promotion is one thing. Okay, so we can separate those two topics a little bit. I mean, you're right. asking them to put some energy around promotion. So that's one thing. But to to just, just to set up an event and say, hey, yeah, it's coming in a couple of months. I don't... Qualifiers, I think, is a good idea, too, but you don't have to do that. I mean, just yeah. anything. Anything is better than I mean, what we've part, got right now. Part of the function of qualifiers is promotion. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? I mean, it's just to get, to get people well, to buy And also prizes. It. I mean, I am I am also yeah. not an economist, and so I don't know the actual impact of introducing a, a couple of sets of foil power nine <laughs> into the, the environment. Yeah. But it, the cost <laughs> has got to be next to zero for them. Exactly. I mean, prizes. the idea of scheduling, I mean, to me, scheduling event can't possibly be that labor intensive. Yeah. It just can't possibly I think, be. Now, promoting is, is, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, there's probably some back end thing on the program that just allows you, hey, I will schedule vintage event for, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, well, it's, it's completely baffling. And, and part of the thing, I mean, to your point about the reaction, I think, is the reaction to the extent that I think there's been two sort of reactions. One is from among vintage players. That, so, uh, I think there's been. But let me re, 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 let me redefine that. I think there's been three general reactions. One has been tacit agreement. Mm-hmm. I mean tacit because the people who agree are just like, great, thank you for saying this, but then they don't really mm-hmm. respond. But among the people who responded, there's been two sort of schools. One is just I don't even know why you're wasting your breath, cynicism. Yeah. And the other is, I think, non-vintage players who don't really understand where I'm coming from or where we're coming from and don't really necessarily, you know, have a perspective of, well, what about these other formats? Or are there these other problems that, that the platform is dealing with that your your recommendations don't really address? And to that, that group, they won't understand what I'm saying because I'm speaking about how to improve the platform for the vintage player. So my audience, in terms of, obviously the audience is mm-hmm. wizard, but the people who run Magic Online, but I'm trying to create a, a, a dialogue from the perspective of, vintage, of a vintage player and not a general Magic player, yeah. you know, who's trying to improve this platform more generally. Now, to those people who are cynical, I think part of the problem is what you said, which is that there has been this perceived trend of sort of generally diminishing support 
for for the format and, and for the vintage community. And and I think part of my response to that in the letter is somewhat of a defense of Wizards, which is to say, you know, Wizards, I think my perception of them is they're a little bit like a tech company out here in the Bay, that they they view technical problems, they, they view these kinds of problems as technical in nature, as in needing a technical solution. And they sort of take, by doing that, you take it out of its cultural context. And, it, and, and that approach to problem solving can produce technical solutions that are well tailored to the problem, but actually be perceived as part of a, a, a general negative mm-hmm. trend. So for example, the idea of reducing the number of dailies made complete sense because the logic was let's reduce the number of dailies and by doing that we'll focus attention on the remaining ones so we'll increase attention and enrollment in those as opposed to sort of distributing enrollment throughout the week. That actually resulted in an increased number of dailies that fired. So technical problem, technical solution, problem solved. Another problem was, you know, let's eliminate premiere events altogether because for a variety of reasons, not just vintage, you know, because no one, they didn't fire. Another problem was, um, you know, let's, let's, uh, shift the minimum number of players from dailies from 16 to eight players. So now they're four to three rounds. So you've got these technical problems, you've got these technical solutions, but the solutions in aggregate, in some looked at holistically, look like, holy crud, they're just destroying support for the Mm -hmm. format. And so part of what we're saying is, look, Wizards needs to be cognizant not only of the problem in front of it, but what does the trend line look like from the perspective of a vintage player, not just the average Magic player on Magic Online. And that's part of the issue, is that, I mean, again, it's baffling to me that you would have this hugely successful holiday festival and then you wouldn't do it. And even things like premiere events, and I understand they took away premiere events writ large, not just for vintage, but the logic would, of, of how they dealt with dailies would seem to suggest, let's try a once-a-month event. It's my opinion that actually a once-a-month event, I mean, that's the rhythm of the vintage player, right? I mean, we're older, we don't play every Friday Night Magic, we like to go to like an event like once a month, and we generate attention around that. And I believe that if you had a monthly premiere event, you would get, every one of them would fire. And more than that, the players who were on the fence about whether they should, you know, buy in would be more inclined to buy in. And the players who sold out because they feel like the format, the medium is is almost, you know, useless to the average vintage player would be more likely to buy back in. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it sounds reasonable to me. And also premier events, possibly the holiday event would have the kind of benefit that the VSL has by drawing exactly. that kind of attention and, There's a few. And, and bringing some potentially some high profile players into it. Wasn't the holiday festival won by Randy or was it LSV? I think it was LSV beating Randy in the That's final. That's what it was. Yep. It was Randy was playing Belcher, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember now. Yeah. So, I mean, that finals, obviously it's pulled straight from the yeah. VSL, but that finals is a, is a good uh, uh, spokesperson for the format. Absolutely. It's a promotional yeah. thing. I mean, it, these things kind of build on each other, right? They're, they're building blocks. To, to me, the, the daily events are not, if you're a vintage player and you're sort of, you love vintage you're on the fence about whether to buy into Magic Online, and you look at the Magic Online offerings, what does it offer you? It offers you two-man events that now pay out in player uh, play points. It offers you dailies that are three rounds. Is that really enough to get you to buy in? If you are a vintage player, probably not. Yeah. You want 
you know, I think what vintage players want is they want a, a big event at least once a month, and they like semi-annual huge events with great prizes. They, they, they would draw in great competition. I mean competition nationwide, competition globally, and competition of the level of, of the likes of people like LSV and Randy, mm-hmm. Hall of Fame. It would, that's what vintage players want. They want to compete against the best players in the game and the best players in the format, and they want to make a name for themselves, and they want to put it to their resume. They're not in it for you know the the prizes per se. I mean, there's certainly people who will compete for value, but I think vintage players want competition more than anything else, and that's the promise of Magic Online, and that's what it's not delivering. Mm, that's right a now. good point. It's a good point. I should just mention though, we did have a couple of other suggestions. We talked about you know play points a little bit and reforming that, tweaking that. We talked about um, fixing the the infinite loop issues that Magic Online right now doesn't permit and it doesn't make some of the other things uh, viable. I don't remember what the other suggestions were. Maybe you do. But the thrust of our suggestion was really just offering vintage players more opportunities for high-level big play. You know? And I hope people I hope people will, will go ahead and read that and, and respond and, and retweet it because really it's about, and from my perspective, it's about, you know, for, first and foremost, we need to come to some consensus about what we think the problems are. You know, and if we can really all get behind one or two key recommendations, I think that'll and then get those implemented. That'll go a long way to getting the format, getting the platform to be the kind of format that we really want to. Well, take a look on Reddit and or the Manadrain. There's good discussion going on in both places there. We'll have the links in our show notes. As usual, it wouldn't be a set review without our prior sets report card. So let's see how we did on Magic Origins. Before we get into the details, I just want to say that um, thinking back and looking back, I'm pretty disappointed in my analysis, so hopefully we'll give a, a better showing here today. Well, you are describing, of course, a couple of misses that we had on Magic Origins, but all in all, it was not very far off. Uh, the biggest and splashiest card still did not have a lot of appearances. We're not talking Snapcaster-level performance or anything from this set, but let's dive in. First two don't bear much discussion. Hallowed Moonlight and Relic Seeker were zeros across the board for our predictions and the results. Vryn Wingmare, though, which we talked about as a potential replacement for Glow Rider in White X Beatdown decks, we both predicted no, no appearances, but there were ultimately two. The, did, the deck did show up in some Hate Bear yeah. style decks at the Eternal Struggle and the 5Ds Unlimited uh, Vintage Tournament. In August, Thalia actually plays an important role in the vintage format because it's one of the few cards in the format where, when designing a deck around it, you aren't automatically and strongly incented to play blue and in, in Force of Will. In fact, it's a card mm-hmm. that's explicitly dissynergistic with cards like that, with not only with blue generally, specifically efficient counter magic and efficient cantrip card draw. Um, and so when thinking just sort of theoretically about deck design in the format, you know, the cost of playing blue is so little, so low that you can play a two, three-color deck and essentially splash blue. But Thalia is one of the few stra- tactics when designing a strategy that really focuses around it, that, you're, you're, you, that, that blue isn't really high on the list of, if, of colors you would add. Um, and, and so in, in some sort of conceptually fundamental way, Thalia is actually an important anchor in the format. It's not widely played, but it's an important anchor nonetheless. Um, 
I, I wonder why people would play this over Glowrider. Our analysis, as I recall, was that Glowrider was basically superior in every respect except for flying, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so fundamentally, we talked about it being human, being being the critical distinction, yeah. because all those Dahlia decks play Cavern, right? Yeah, most of them do. And looking at the two lists we're talking about here, they're both mono-white, and it's ironic. One of them, they're both Thalia-based lists, of course. One of them has Cavern of Souls, but opted to play Vryn Wingmare over Glowrider. Four of them, in fact, which I agree with your what you're assessing right there, which is it's a surprising dissynergy. That is to say you're opening yourself up to your opponent's Force of Wills in a way that these decks try yeah, not to do. I mean, it's the do. only Pegasus in the deck, I presume. And therefore... In, in, yeah, absolutely. In, in a deck with Dahlia in this card, you would. I mean, I don't see why you wouldn't play Cavern of Souls. Even in a monocolor deck, why would you not? I mean, is there any effect yeah. that punishes that punishes non-basic lands? I mean, is the I guess the only reason to do it is that it to, I mean, if you're playing mono white, you could play a functionally wasteland impervious deck. So I'm, I guess I could be wrong about that. Mm-hmm. You could just have. They're not though. I mean. Well, I, the other list, so the list I mentioned has two Cavern of Souls in addition to the basic Wasteland Strip Package plus a Caracas. Yeah. So these decks are pretty aggressively using Wasteland and Strip Mine. In fact, this the one that has four Wing Mirrors actually has four Ghost Quarters as well. It's very land-heavy with yes. 22 lands. But th- it, inevitably, those decks end up tapping their Wastelands for mana to cast things like Thalia... Yeah. Revoker, yeah, so they, and an Arbiter, and this Vryn Wingmare. So they're not really wasteland-proof decks, even though they have ten basics. But I, I take that back. I guess, I guess if you're but, playing mono white and you are just playing the strip package and you're not playing any sort of least main deck, a lot of these specialty lands, then I guess it is at least mm-hmm. not entirely unreasonable to omit Cavern. But if you're playing if you're playing multicolor, yeah. Cavern's an automatic inclusion, and even monocolor, Cavern's a very strong inclusion. Well, I think you're generally right. The other list that made top eight has only a single ring, ring yeah. wing mare, and it has three glow riders, yeah. but so, no cavern. So, guess, so it makes me wonder if Kelly Riddle here is trolling us by playing the single it, wing mare. Well, consider us <laughs> trolled, but it, well, I think I yeah. think the mistake in our reasoning was that we didn't consider the possibility that someone would just play a mono white hate bears deck and 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 take that to its natural conclusion, which means that at least it's it's not completely beyond you know it's not completely illogical to include this over Rider if yeah. you're playing mono white because then you have a functionally identical card except it has flying so yeah. but, but but again yeah. we're yeah, only talking about two copies so i mean we're within the margin of error right i think that our discussion landed on the fact that this card is vintage playable we just didn't expect anyone to mm-hmm. play it or play that archetype broadly speaking but two appearances right. is two appearances Next up is Artificer's Epiphany. Now, we were both pretty jazzed about this one. You predicted three. I'm sorry. I predicted three. You predicted seven. The actual, unfortunately, was zero, which is still a little bit surprising to me. And I think it will influence some of our card evaluation in the upcoming set review, too. You know, I have to but this, compared to a number of other a number of other cards on this list, is still a little bit surprising. I, I'm genuinely surprised with... The amount of innovation that went into a handful of decks leading up to Vintage Champs that simply no one went down this road. Yeah, you know, I, I have to confess that I don't remember the substance of our analysis, so it's hard to evaluate mm-hmm. where we went wrong, but it could just simply be that, um, you know, the, we had the math wrong, that 
playing this card requires you to play some number of mocks, and, and the reliability is not sufficient to justify its, inclu- its con- inclusion. But I have no memory of, you know, really what was said. Well, and we talked at length during our top eight review of Vintage Champs about Bobby Green's Grixis Thieves deck and about the related theory regarding the Haymaker kind of development for that deck and how it positions itself. It's worth noting that that deck would have been a kind of ideal place for Artificer's Epiphany, being fully filled with all of the mana accelerants. But those decks these days are simply not trading on incremental card draw. Basically, the only card draw they're playing that isn't restricted is Dig Through Time. Well, they have and that, that which is provided by Planeswalkers and Thieves, yeah. Right, but there's no there's no other card draw spell that... They're not playing Night's Whisper right now. They're not playing even Thirst, mostly. So still, it still seems like the the space in the metagame that's provided by that Grixis yeah. Thieves-style deck is where this card would go. Yeah, it, so maybe our, no one has de- decided it's so right. Maybe the point you're making is that our analysis hinged on some sort of breakout or new strategy rather than being into something mm-hmm. pre-existing. Next up is Days Undoing. You predicted three, I predicted one, and the results according to TC decks are zero. However, there is a Mana Drain post about Team Serious Open in Columbus on 8.15. 13 players in which Sam Krolaw and Nat Mose placed first and second with Mono Blue Belcher, both featuring Days Undoing. So we have to asterisk our TC, de- TC decks results here and point out that there really are two top eight appearances, first and second place, no less, that we know of for Days Undoing. So that's right between us. Yeah, so we I don't like doling out a lot of asterisks when we do this because we're dealing with imperfect data gathering, but the simple truth is we know about some results for this, and it was that kind of volume of results. I was thinking specifically about Team Serious Open folks when I predicted my, my single appearance. The fact that they both made it first and second is pretty funny. Uh, so I think we were pretty close on Days Undoing's impact on the metagame. Next we have Displacement Wave. Not much discussion to be had there. Zeros across the board. Followed by Harbinger of Tides. Another small contributor. Steve, you predicted two. I predicted one. And according to TC Dex, there was one. So not much to say there. The card is definitely a, a simple role player in Merfolk. And I think it'll be an on and off again staple in that archetype. Might not go in every time, I mean, but I think it's consistently good enough. It's the truth is, is that Merfolk yeah. is simply not a top performer yep. these days. But it could be crop up more in the future. Up in the BSL. Yeah, good example. Next one's probably the one that should bear the most that's... discussion fruit, and that's Jace for yeah. Prodigy. We both predicted zero after a long discussion, and the result, according to TC Dex, is five. Now let's break that five down into what its its constituent parts are, because two out of the five is Matt Murray who has been experimenting and and been a proponent of the card's goodness, basically. So he made top eight at two events. He won one of them, in fact, the Players Guild. The next three are comprised of two dragon lists, one of which is also Matt Murray. (laughs) So Matt's got two top eights with a control version, like they're calling Keeper, one top eight with a uh, dragon deck. J.R. Goldberg, our friend, also made top eight at the prelim on Saturday at Vintage Champs with Dragon. And then the fifth appearance is a very strange Grixis rogue deck with with hits such as main deck is it Staticaster, Master of Waves, Venser Shaper Savant, and Yaleva Nefalius Scourge. I I don't know how this deck achieved what it did, but hey, there it is. A fifth appearance of Jace Vrin's Prodigy. 
Steve, what do you make of this? What I make of it is that we did a terrible job reviewing it. Just, I'll make the blanket (laughs) caveat first, that whenever I predict cards, I try and distinguish between cards that I think are playable in the abstract, that is, given the, the sort of baseline level of power within the vintage format, this is a card that it, you know, could at some point see play, and cards that I actually... Like yeah, the and then cards that I think will show up in top eight. And there's a difference because there are cards that, mm-hmm. you know, like Read the Bones, I think are potentially playable. They, they meet some sort of baseline level of power, but haven't actually, as a matter of fact, shown up. I think this card exemplifies the, well, first of all, exemplifies that because I think both of you, both of us, I hope, thought that this was playable, but we didn't think it would see play. So, but that aside, even if that's mm-hmm. not true, um, I think we just missed the boat on this card, and we underestimated it in several respects. Um, I think you know we were we were focused overly focused on what it did, but not enough on its its mana cost. Um, you know, we, we our assessment sort of boiled down to the fact that you know two things: one, that the the effect could only be used once before you had to use another effect to get back to the to the good effect, and we didn't really give that enough value. And then we didn't really consider, I think, enough just the fact that this is a two-mana card. Um, I, I think the combination of those is... The other thing, I think perhaps even more important than that, to just the considerations already mentioned, are the fact that we didn't really put enough thought into actually thinking about how this card would play out. You know, we, we, we focused on the mechanics, but we didn't, we didn't illustrate those mechanics. So if we had, for example, just taken it a step further and said, okay, let's say I play this on turn two... And on turn three, I activate a fetch land and it flips. And, you know, I play Gush and then I can reuse Gush immediately. I mean, maybe if we had just said that, something as simple as that, we would have been like, whoa, that's pretty powerful. You know, but we didn't do that. And so I don't think we really gave this card its full merit and consideration. What about you? Where do you think we were? I think that's fair. I think there's a mixture of the things that you said that this card is, it passes some basic threshold of playability, but it takes it. Our predictions are a combination of predicting if, if a card passes that threshold and also how the community will embrace it. Right. So the same goes for Vryn Wingmare, Days Undoing, Jace, and some other cards we're going to talk about in the future where we assess the card's utility, but then it takes players yeah. to embrace that and put it into practice. And Matt Murray is an example here where he's three out of the yeah. five examples here, right? If it's that one player doesn't take it upon himself to to champion this card, then you know it would have two results and we wouldn't be talking about it, it as, might, might as much. Also, yeah. there's right. There's another factor here too, which is that two of two of the five appearances here are in an archetype which ostensibly had left the metagame for years, yeah. and that is Dragon. And we don't really need to debate whether or not Dragon is a legitimate tentpole of the format or not right now. That's out of the scope of this. But the simple truth is is that this card may have improved that archetype, while that archetype may not be a, a strong contender in the format as a whole. Yeah. And I think we're going to talk about it similarly, Dark Petition, after this. You no, know, fact-checkers can tell us whether they're wrong. But I think my assessment of Hangerback Walker, which we are going to get to, was was exactly the kind you talked about, which this card is clearly playable. I just don't think people are going to pick it up. Um, we, because Workshop is driven so much, so much by pioneers, by people deciding to play things. But in this particular case, I just didn't think people would do it. I was open to the possibility people would do it. But but I think the bigger mistake, the big of all those mistakes, I think the bigger mistake was us just not thinking about, you know, this is a two-mana card that who's, you know, so this is a two-mana card, really, that's the key. 
right? I mean, and his even though the ability can't be used back to back, that's okay because being able to use it on turn three and then turn five is actually good enough. And that's kind of the the sequencing with this card, I think, right? Um, and again, and again, yeah. if we had put some some examples to it, if we had, you know, instead of just trying to analyze it in the abstract, like saying, you know, okay, you can use this ability on turn three and then again on turn five, if we'd actually use specific examples like Gush or other cards like that, I think we would have, you know, seen the the power in this card a bit more. I mean, you know, I, I think I think what we dramatically most underestimated is two of the most powerful draw spells in Vintage right now. The unrestricted cards are Gush and Dig Through Time. This card's actually insane with both because it's just the way that mm-hmm. it unfolds. And I should have queued into that because I played with those cards more than anyone, you know. But so I mean, <laughs> Gush is a turn three card. That's one of my fundamental rules in my in my uh, in my Gush book. And you know, this card is a turn two card most of the time. You know, even with Moxton, it's probably going to be slightly more often than not a turn two card. And then, you know, this becomes active on turn three. It helps you get build towards dig, so you can activate it. It'll flip immediately, which is insane. You know, it doesn't have to wait till the end of the turn. And then you can cast dig and then reuse dig immediately. Or, you know, that's that's really broken. Well, assuming you have the delve for dig, <laughs> that's right. a little tricky. But, but this card, this card contributes your point, your point is well made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really insane. Well... I agree with what you said. I mean, I, I don't think we can. I don't think we need to belabor yeah. the point any further. We definitely did not give this card its due, and I think we're not alone. I've monitored the discussions about this card in person and on the Mana Drain and on Twitter, and I think, broadly speaking, a lot of people haven't given this card the credit it deserves. And I think a few more people will be surprised if they I test this, it. I have since I've since played the card in a tournament. Yeah, and I really, really enjoyed good. it. I mean, it's really good. I I. I this card is one probably the card I was most disappointed in my analysis of because I mean I have every reason to give this more credit. In fact, I'd ever reason to, to over credit. I probably could have predicted more than five. The, the other thing is I think this is I think this is showing up in some online Magic Online Delver decks as a one of, which makes a lot of sense. And, and I you know in some respects this card like fills the Snapcaster niche, except it's proactive. It, it mm-hmm. helps you build your delve quickly. It gets it's really good with gush because it can get rid of your you know I mean you think about it if you play gush it can help mm-hmm. you get rid of the land that you just return with gush into the card that you need so it provides kind of like a mini Jace the mind sculptor there and then if that's the fifth card then it flips immediately so this card's actually I think I think this card is going to replace any of the Delver decks that are playing with the singleton Snapcaster Mage I think they're probably switching to Jace Burns Prodigy is a one of mm-hmm. well I can see that. And I could see this card seeing a greater, yeah, greater exposure over the course of the so. next few months. It is a yeah. nice role player. I think it is. I think it helps a lot of decks as a one or two of. Bottom line for me is this card is going to have to go into my gush book as a potential card. For me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it hasn't solidified itself as having a, a solid home either. The decks that made the five decks that made top eight were underrepresented decks well, in the metagame. We're talking about one rogue deck, yeah. two dragons, and two what they call keeper, an Esper style control, which is not a, a, a strong player in the metagame right now. That right Wait, I think it's show up in a number of different yeah. archetypes, and you know I applaud people who like Matthew Mirror who have been experimenting with it, but I think I think it's going to show up in a lot of things. I think it's especially going to show up in some of these Delver decks more frequently. Yeah. All right, let's move on to a card with a similar but not quite as storied result: Dark Petition. You and I talked about it at length, both in our set review and in the uh, our vintage champs coverage we both predicted zero but there was one appearance and it was from champs at the prelim where adrian becker made top eight at the prelim on saturday with their i said there because he and jesse martin played very similar lists their 
TPS with dark petition, which we already talked about at length in the last show. So I, I don't think we can we need to rehash this whole yeah. thing a lot. But for the sake of people who didn't listen to the last episode, this list is a pretty straightforward. Uh, at least at looking at first, it's a pretty straightforward TPS style build. But Jesse Martin, Adrian Becker, and a couple others, they they pit upon this sideboard strategy, which is heavy land heavy against workshops, and that supports then the dark petition strategy in the long run. But um, but the real truth is, it, you you're on record as saying that this deck might be as good as it is without dark petition in it and some other card in its place. Yeah. And it's hard to tease out whether or not this is a dark petition deck or just a an interesting and well positioned TPS well, deck. Well, I, I want to modify that a little bit. Um, so I think one of the things that we pointed out is that you know in, in our set review is what are you going to be finding with dark petition beyond potence or Yagmas mm-hmm. will you know um, and there's a mm-hmm. huge investment here. Five mana is is no small thing. Um, but but from what I've seen in the decks that are using it, like Reed Duke's deck, and, and it, they're basically just playing it like a Grim Tutor that finds Necropotence and, and Yagmas will, and then uses uses it immediately. But especially, I think Necropotence. So one of the things that we pro- look, I don't want to overstate this. There's one of these in the top eight, just one. So let's not <laughs> let's not go overboard and say this card's amazing and it's showing up everywhere. Um, you know, but but that said, you know, I think basically the kind of TPS type deck that they developed. Is sufficiently slow that like a turn three dark petition into necro is actually just their game plan. It's their strategy, and it makes a lot of sense in that design. So, but I think it's still playable in even like a reduke type deck. I think he played with one. So, you know, it's it's clearly playable. Uh, I think we we both underestimated it. Um, I don't think it's quite as good as I don't think it's insane. It's not it's not like you know something that's going to show up in every combo deck, but it's playable. It has a role, it has a niche, and it's another vintage card. Mm-hmm. Yep, agreed. It's very similar to the result of Jace in Dragon. Dragon is yeah. not a, a large or even a small portion of the metagame right now. TPS is in a similar well, boat. If you're the sort of player who would like to play a deck like that, then Dark Petition should be I don't want to mislead our, our listeners. I think your point is right in the context of Dragon, but I think Jace is actually better than our results represent. Well, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All right, let's move on then to Demonic Pact, which was zeros across the board. No surprise there. Next up, uh, Liliana, Heretical Healer. You predicted none. I predicted two. <laughs> there were none. And I I hold out some hope that Liliana will have a place in the long run creature-based utility deck that we hypothesized about a bit during our review, but hasn't come to pass yet. Next up are a handful of cards that are all zeros. Abbot of Curl Keep, Gear Up Your Aether Grid, although I really do think we'll see that in the future. Magmatic Insight, which I really don't think we'll see in the future. Here's a fun one. Managorger Hydra. So we both predicted zeros, but there was one top eight. A, a bug-style deck featuring Managorger Hydra. It's Gush Aggro, which is the place I, I think you... Yeah, it's a natural that's home That's exactly what we said, Hydra. right? If this shows up, it'll be in Bug Gush, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this is exactly the kind of thing we predicted. It has, it has one Lotus Cobra and one Tendrils in the main, which I thought was pretty cool. It has Fast Bond, so it's a Gush Bond combo-ish deck with Managorger Hydra as an alternate kill, yeah. This deck is really sweet. He's also got his uh, green sub zenith to find one of them in a lot. Of- yeah, which I think is an, a neat touch. I'm somewhat surprised not to find a single deathrite shaman in there yeah, for that reason. Yeah, at least. One. But that's but that's a, a minor point. Now I should add that I and a friend of mine, Aaron Katz, have been playing Managorger Hydra lists mm-hmm. in the Michigan area. In fact, if we're in the business of asterisks, Aaron made top four with the card at the last Eternal Games 
which didn't mm. get published. But so there's actually <laughs> another one in there. And I personally think the card is very fun yeah. to play with, but I'm not certain that it is actually good long-term power for the metagame, but it's worth keeping yeah. an eye on. I was going to ask you how you... It, it's difficult to construct the deck where Hydra is the right card and Mentor or Pyromancer are not the right card. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But the card is, I think, past a certain threshold of playability. It's just just not always the best. I was burned when I played it by the whole vertical growth yeah. versus horizontal growth thing. On more yeah, that's season. that's the thing that held this card back. But yeah, but I have to tell you that it yeah, grows I, fast. I, <laughs> it really, well, it really does. I have more on more than one occasion in tournament play played Black Lotus Mana Gorger Hydra, and that is that's a recipe for, for some nice. fun. <laughs> so we'll see about Mana Gorger Hydra. All right, next up is probably the biggest shower, even though the numbers aren't large, and that is Hangerback Walker. Before before you say, I just want to point out that we did predict that this was playable, and we did predict it would show up. And I'm very proud of my one mm -hmm. there. <laughs> very <laughs> proud. Yeah. Well, numerically, I, I think this is one of those cases where we are not very far off numerically. Way off. But there was for us to be more wrong than we are, so, that's so for sure. The actual, according to TC decks, is only four appearances. But we know, based on conversations we've had in prior episodes, that that TC Dex is missing the Gen Con yeah. qualifiers, where both Ryan and Paul won buys using Hangerback Walker. So the result with the asterisk really and should be six. It's also missing, you know, Magic Online results, etc. Yeah. Well, of course. And the simple truth is, is that, and as we discussed this in our wrap up of champs, this card was probably the biggest single breakout card of champs. I mean, for, yeah. not just from this set, but just new developments showed up because obviously two decks in the top eight but also the performance of the card in its sub archetype as opposed to all the other workshop variants and also i, I genuinely think and we we touched on this there's there was an information in issue with regard to the fact that the gen con lists weren't published yeah. on like a top eights list like tc decks th that brian and paul both wrote about the deck but I think it suffered from a lack of visibility, and that contributed to the fact that not very many people brought it to bear at champs. I really think this six, this asterisk with a six yeah. next to it, is even understating the importance of this card, e even in the last couple of months, because it, there should have been more copies if more yeah. people knew about it. No, I think I think that's right. I mean, this this card has appeared in a number of Magic Online results, so it, it's you know the, the the data we have from Paper Magic understates its presence. Um, you know, I think both of our, our analysis yeah. was basically dead on. I mean, our analysis was accurate. I think, though, we did miss one thing, and what we missed was that Hangerback Walker, this is probably what would have put it over the top for us, is we missed that Hangerback Walker mm -hmm. was particularly good in the workshop mirror, and especially built around Arcbound Ravager, because it generates so much permanent advantage and so much power advantage so quickly that, and, and also yeah. it's so resilient to the forms of extant anti-artifact you know, spells that are out there, like Ancient Grudge and stuff like that. So I think we underestimated that as well. But, you know, had we thought for a moment about the evolution of a workshop archetype in terms of the mirror, we probably would have thought a little bit more about Hangerback Walker. But anyway. I I learned a lot about the workshop mirror leading up to Champs and then since Champs. I genuinely did not think that this card was going to be very good yeah. in the workshop mirror. And that is to say, I didn't think it was a primary reason right. to play this card. But I was stuck in the mindset of yes. the Martello mirrors yes. and my own inexperience with, with growing and evolving that archetype. But after talking with Brian DeMars and doing some testing in, in anticipation of champs, and then 
what we've learned since then, it is a natural inclusion. And the natural value comes from in the mirror because it's yes. efficiency. And this was one of Brian's mantras in terms of how he developed his deck for the mirror is he wanted to have all of the yeah. cheapest threats because the mirror does. And this is why I didn't get, I didn't get the value proposition of this card, right? The mirror focuses on mana denial. You, you want to be able to play a threat and then deny your opponent mana quickly and then recursively yes. recruitable. But I didn't really anticipate how much this card plays into that strategy because you can play it as cheaply as possible. Right. It's two mana. It's the cheapest threat the decks have had in ages. And then it continues to yes. grow as a threat over time. Well, we talked about that. Huge. And what we didn't say, though, was we, did, we didn't focus on the synergy with Arcbound Ravager. Anticipate, I mean, to your point about right. efficiency, Arcbound Ravager is like, like the greatest threat in the workshop mirror. And then Hangerback Walker is the greatest card that boosts Arcbound Ravager. So that's... Yeah, it's true. Well, and we again, I was stuck in the mindset of Martello when I was performing my analysis. I touched on how good this card would yeah. be with Smokestack. Yeah. And Hiramichi, Hiramichi did, did yeah. well at, at Champs with Smokestack and, and Hangerback Walkers. I think the future of this card is in a handful of different flavors of workshops. Yeah, lists that start similar to... I mean, because as you know... The lists that ended up in the top eight, Rich Shea's list as, compo- as compared to Brian and Paul's list, uh, they sort of developed from different directions and landed at a point that you was know, very I close mean, to the I middle between Robots and Martello. I mean, in the results of Magic Online events, I don't know wh- where he got it, whether he came to it independently or whether he saw Brian's list on Hangerback you know, and, and move from there. I, mm-hmm. I don't know, but, the, but your point is, is well taken. I mean, I think at this point we, we understand what we missed but we also should be proud of ourselves for acknowledging that we thought it would be playable and play. We just mm-hmm. missed one key piece of that that a lot that caused us to underestimate a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, and the, these developments in shops have colored my impression of the future of that archetype, broadly speaking, and all, all facets of it. And this card is. A I want to add definitely. It's I want to add something else that um, just going back to Jace for Prodigy for a second. Um, I was pulling up some Magic Online results. And one of the dailies from 912 is a young Pyromancer deck with Dig and Gush that has three Jason Brin Prodigy and three Pyromancer. And in mm-hmm. again, this I want to we said it, but I want to emphasize it because I, I was a little bit indirect about this. Where Snapcaster Mage, the two cards that Snapcaster Mage doesn't interact with well that see a lot of play in vintage, you know, among others are Gush and Dig. And that's where this card shines. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, fitting it mm-hmm. into that kind of slot makes so much sense. It's so synergistic with those spells. Um, and again, I take full culpability for not uh, noticing that. I mean, being a gush pilot and a dig pilot, I should have I should have noticed that. But it's clear that this card is really insane with those. I mean, again, because it, you get the gush benefit without having the drawback too. So yeah, it's, it's true. It's insane with gush. Well, the next card to finish our report card is Orbs of Warding. You predicted three, I predicted four, but ultimately there was zero, which I find. Just a little bit surprising, because as we analyzed in our our set review, the card compares very favorably to Witchbane Orb, with some upside against creature decks, wide creature decks like Pyromancer or Dredge. And with the popularity of Martello, it being the single most popular individual archetype at Champs, I'm genuinely surprised that no one in that event showed up with some Orbs of Warding, or no one testing for that event, you know, in advance made top eight with any. So I guess we just underestimated how much Martello players would want this effect. Or I'm sorry, we overestimated how much they would want this effect. I think effect. it may have something to do with the decline of Oath going into that event. 
if Oath had been more prominent, maybe this card would have been showing up in slightly more quantities. Yeah, well, we'll see how see how that shapes now that Oath yeah. won the event. <laughs> uh, this similar to say Jiripir Aether Grid and a few and and cards like Artificer's Epiphany, I still expect that we will see some Orbs of War in the future. Yeah, because it's a versatile and and powerful effect and. Uh, well, Martello, even though Hangerback Walker might be the future, Cold Alta Forge Master is no, by no means left the metagame. It'll be a staple for Were there any cards that we didn't review that appeared in top eights? Well, I have done a, a, as much research as I can on that fact without going card by card through the whole yeah. through the whole spoiler, and I haven't found Good. one yet. But I'm hoping that those of you listening to this, if there are other Origins cards that made top eight that players had success with that we didn't review here, Please let us know. We'll add uh, amendments to our, our next podcast to mention those. And with that, Battle for Zendikar. Well, Steve, we'd like to start our new set reviews by talking a little bit about the mechanics of the set. And since Battle for Zendikar is a return to Zendikar, there is also a return to certain mechanics. Hmm. Most famous of which are Landfall and the whole Allies slash Rally mechanic, which are being reused here. Landfall didn't have a huge impact in Vintage, but there there was a little bit of playability with it. I'm thinking about Lotus Cobra. Was there another example of a Landfall card? That's the card that sticks in my mind. Yeah. It's certainly a relevant mechanic in Vintage, given that it's a Fetchland format, so Landfall was developed to be used with Fetchlands, the synergy is there. And also, Vintage has the most ability to replay lands, because we've got Fast Bond, but Fast Bond's a little on the down right now, as opposed to when the original Zendikar came out. But new mechanics coming into this battle for Zendikar include... The biggest one is the whole ingest-slash-exile interaction. Why do you explain that? Well, a number of Eldrazi cards involve exiling your opponent's cards from the top of their library, and in some other cases, permanents in play. It's epitomized by the ingest keyword, which says whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, that player exiles the top card off of his or her library. That's the the simple ingest mechanic. A number of other cards have a similar kind of exiling off the top of the library effect for other reasons. And then, so that's referred to thematically in the lore as ingesting and then processing. Hmm. And the processing takes those cards out of exile and does things with them. Yeah. So a number of cards have the have the clause, if you put a card from your opponent's exile zone into their graveyard, you get some other extra effect when you play the card or when it comes into play. So it's a large theme across many of the Eldrazi cards, the various drones and processors and such. I, I find that theme to be incredibly interesting for two reasons. One, mm-hmm. we haven't seen a lot of cards in the past that actually shift cards from the exile zone into other zones again. So obviously Correct. there's cards like Pull from Eternity, but this is one of the this is kind of pervasive throughout this set. So it's interesting and notable for that reason alone that you can actually exile cards, and I guess there are ways now to get them back. Um, yeah. But the more important reason I find it so fascinating is because this is essentially a new resource in in Magic. You know, the, there are lots of cards that use that use. You know, the available resources in Magic are generally mana, life, cards, um, and cards obviously have different 
forms of resources like delve is resources cards in your graveyard um force of will and that whole mechanic is cards from your hand um but we've never seen a mechanic that uses cards from an exiled zone let alone your opponent's exiled zone but this is a completely new resource in magic especially one that is recurringly used um since there are several eldrazi creatures especially that and, and some spells that say when you play this or when it comes into play, you can do this. It, it implies that you can do it over and over again over the course of a game. That's why they came up with this ingest keyword that's based on, on creature damage, so that you can continue to put cards in exile and continue to have a resource. Also, this is a cross-block mechanic with cons and delve that was partially intended to punish your opponent for delving. Oh. Because as your opponents delve then they're giving you free access to this resource without you having to do anything. Got it. And that is that is the thing that I am actually most interested out about from a vintage context, but which is not paid off in this set at least, not in Battle for Zendikar at all. In fact, we don't have a single card that we're even going to bother reviewing that has that processing mechanic in it because, because the effects that they put that process basically in this set are just not yeah. worth it from a vintage context. Well, they've opened new design space. So it, it depends now. It's up to them now to see how far they want to push it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, and we talked about this probably four or five shows ago, <laughs> I mentioned how I had a general desire for there to be a, a, an incidental way in vintage to get cards out of your opponent's graveyard that was not a hoser. You remember that conversation where I was saying if, if there were more playable cards that would also just happen to exile a couple of cards here and there, it would hurt Delve. It would make Dig and Treasure Cruise harder to reliably play. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing I didn't consider was the the ancillary effect, which is punish your opponent for putting cards into their exile zone. And this mechanic that they've opened the door for here could lead to something like that. Imagine for a moment if, to take the most absurd example for among absurd examples in vintage ancestral recall imagine yet another ancestral recall variant where as an additional cost to play it so it's just straight up ancestral recall one blue instant target player draws three cards as an additional cost to play this you must put three cards from your opponent's exile zone into their graveyard i was thinking the same thing yeah yeah now think about that card i mean it's it's and the, now, the, the number is variable. It could be three, it could be five, I don't know, to make it balanced. Balance notwithstanding, though, the point is is that it, the mana cost is very cheap, but within reason, you can't expect to be able to play it early in the game. So you're balancing out the mana cost by making it a late-game card. Can you imagine how much better a Leyline of the Void would get? <laughs> card like <laughs> yeah, that? I know. Now, again, I, I preface this whole thing by saying that's an absurd example. I don't expect right. that card or one even close to it to see print. But the point is is that if such a card existed then it puts pressure on cards like Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise and a few right. others. Oh, yeah. Now, you're right. The interaction with Leyline of the Void means that card's unprintably good. But the point remains <laughs> is that they have a resource now and a way to punish people for all this digging. In a vintage context, my guess is there's nothing they can do. And I, I really hate saying this, but my guess is there's nothing they can do to dissuade people from playing Dig Through Time. Yeah. <laughs> and any card that was conditional enough that it was good at punishing dig through time would be unplayable in basically any other context. Well, you but could we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think you could actually make an aggro creature, like a red creature or something that gets enormous. If you can like ex- quickly, you know, exile like seven, uh, uh, put seven cards in their opponent's graveyard. Oh, I see your point. So it could just be a bonus on. Yeah. 
that's something that hasn't come into play like, in this set like, yet. Like it's a something that just gets way better for every card yeah, that I've like, exiled. It's a bear that becomes a 10-10 if you can put like seven cards from your opponent's exile in their graveyard. Yeah, interesting. Well, we'll see. We will see exactly that. It, my guess is they're saving a bit of that for the next couple of sets after Battle for Zendikar. Or they're testing because there really is. Or they're testing the waters to see sort of how this this works because. I mean, this is well, from a development standpoint, it wouldn't be in this block. They can't test the waters and still release things in this block. For sure, for sure. but I mean, it, it is novel design space, you know, and mm -hmm. there is re there are always reasons to be careful. I mean, one thing that strikes me is that just looking at how people play, people mm -hmm. do, not, do not have a lot of physical regard for the exile zone. I mean, I've seen people, you know, just sort of throw things in the exile zone. They don't really treat it like a traditional zone. You know, there's multiple mm -hmm. you have multiple exile zones. You know, yeah. Well. And we talked about it when the organized play update came through that mandated where cards should go, specifically exile cards in relation to the cards that have exiled them, if it's from a permanent. Yeah. And this effect has interesting impacts on cards like Chrome Mox, as we discussed then, such that, I don't know, could have impacts on other Eternal or Modern formats. We'll see. Other Another keyword that has come out in Battle for Zendikar, which I think bears... A lot of discussion in Vintage is Converge. And you might know Converge as Sunburst. Yeah. I genuinely haven't studied the, the, the minute differences between the two, but the simple truth is that Converge is the same as Sunburst. It counts the colors of mana that you played when you cast a spell and does some variable effect on the spell's resolution based on how many different colors you paid. We've got creatures that get plus one, plus one counters for every color. We've got damage spells. We've got card draw spells. We've got creature kill spells. It's... We've got almost everything. <laughs> they kind of took a little bit of everything from the Converge menu when they printed this set, which is cool. You have a buffet of... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. We'll be talking about a few of those cards here. Also, a new mechanic, Awaken. Now, Awaken, I don't think, has a whole lot of relevance in Vintage, unless they make it really cheap or weird. But the simple truth is it, it's a way to cast a spell that, in addition to that spell's effect, you also awaken a land of yours meaning it becomes a zero zero creature and you put some number of plus one plus one counters on it. I don't think that effect is especially relevant in Vintage. It would take something very powerful and or strange, stranger than animating your lands for it to see play in Vintage, but we'll just have to wait for the next set, I think. Yeah, but it's not a keyword mechanic, but there is a new keyword called Devoid. Oh, yes. And it is basically a characteristic of a card that is used... Is Played using colored mana, but devoid means that the card does not have a color. Ghost fire. Yes, it's interesting that they've uh, they've added a mechanic for that characteristic. It's worth noting, related to devoid, that it. I don't. I'm not certain that any of the devoid cards are actually playable in vintage. But regardless, if they are, vintage has actually has a surprising number of effects that rely on color, and it might at first appear like well, there's no circles of protection in Vintage, and there's not a lot of creatures with protection from X, so eh, it probably doesn't matter that much. No. But there are actually a number of cards that are impacted by a card being devoid. Pyroblast, Force of Will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Misdirection, Red Elemental Blast, of course. Yep. Also some other s subtly surprising cards. Sudden Demise, Mother of Runes, Sword of Fire and Ice, Sphinx of the Steel Wind, Icarid, Rending Volley, Snuff Out, Fury. Grindstone. Fury and Dryad. Yeah, there, there's actually a surprising number of cards that 
for which color is a relevant factor in vintage. Now, some of those cards are clearly fringe playable, but in some other cases, it, it could matter. I mean, Rich Shea was playing Sword of Fire and Ice in his top eight list at Vintage Chance. Right. Uh, Bobby Green had Sphinx of the Steel Wind. I mean, so protection is, is actually a relevant thing in Vintage. And blue cards, I mean, one of the standard, one of the tried and true ways of evaluating a blue card was, hey, it still pitches the Force of Will, even when it's dead, right? Yeah. These Devoid cards do not pitch the Force of Will or Misdirection. So don't get caught assuming anything about a Devoid card if you happen to be testing one or playing against one in Vintage. Because the Devoid is, I think, a relevant mechanic. So let's dive in then, and our first candidate up for review is one Titan's Presence. Titan's Presence costs three, instant. As an additional cost to cast Titan's Presence, reveal a colorless creature card from your hand. Exile target creature if its power is less than or equal to the revealed card's power. So what we have here is a very flexible removal spell in that it just exiles target creature, but you have to have a larger, or at least equally large, colorless creature in your hand now a lot of people looked at this first i was among them and thought hey it's a removal spell for workshops right yeah it's colorless and workshops tend to be playing lodestone golem or forge master or a handful of larger robots like sundering titan and yeah. oil engine so the odds of having a larger creature in your hand when you're about to pay three mana is it's, it's not unheard of i mean it's, it's the sort of thing workshops could do but the trick is, is and this, we got to say this right up front for all of these colorless spells, is they're not artifacts. <laughs> Most of the colorless spells in this set are not artifacts, and so you can't cast this off of a workshop. And that, to me, I think is the death knell right there. In addition to that, for this particular kind of effect, Titan's Presence, Workshops already has access to Dismember, yes. which, is, which is cheaper and easier to cast across the board, life payment notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean, one way to think about this card's liability is to take off the conditionality. And suppose this was just a three colorless instant that said mm -hmm. exile target creature. How good would that be? And where would that fit? Um, I think it would probably compete with cards like uh, Dismember, but Dismember would still have the advantage of being more efficient, a lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. and, and its efficiency is critical because that's how it is. I mean, it's used to combat cards like Lodestone Golem. So mm -hmm. um, even... Tempo cards. Yeah, tempo cards. So even... Even if um, this red, like I said, it would be, it would obviously be much better, but I'm, I wouldn't feel confident that it would be like a huge playable. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. I think that goes for most, I think the comparison to Dismember goes for most archetypes, even decks that don't play much Dismember these yeah. days. Uh, I think that comparison is still right. If those decks wanted this effect, they'd yeah. be playing Dismember already. Yeah. And there's, there's other cards like Swords to Plowshares that are. Oh yes. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about what this card can do that Dismember can't, though. I think the biggest yeah. candidate's probably Gristlebrand. That's what stands out. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Dark Steel, Light Steel Colossus, and things like that. But yeah, true. Some of the larger workshop robots, like aforementioned Worm Coil, Worm Coil Engine, Sundering Titan. So it's not as though this effect is directly inferior to, Dis uh, to Dismember, but I think broadly speaking, the efficiency is the reason this card won't see play. Add into that then the conditionality yeah. and. And I just think it's a zero. Yeah, it's a zero. I mean, the probability of having, even if you're a workshop player, uh, workshop pilot that has a, a creature dense deck mm -hmm. that has a big curve, like a Koldotha version. I mean, you're talking about four golems, four Koldothas, and then what, like four other creatures, like maybe a Sundering Titan, a uh, Steel Hell Kite, a Worm Coil Engine, 
Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, and that's about it. I mean, you probably you probably have four uh, Rexine revokers, but that's not going to kill much. Yeah, I I agree completely. If we were to fully analyze and deeply analyze those numbers, I think we'd find it be pretty disappointing in its reliability, yeah. <laughs> even to get rid of anything moderately sized. Okay, let's move on to a really interesting one. This is Void Winnower <laughs> for nine creature Eldrazi. Your opponents can't cast spells with even converted mana costs. Parentheses zero is even. Your opponents can't block with creatures with even converted mana costs. It's eleven nine. <laughs> now this has this has been the topic of discussion almost directly uh, upon release vis-a-vis Oath of Druids. So we can talk about it with respect to Oath, but let's just evaluate. I think assuming you can get it into play, <laughs> because that's that's not an, and it's not a sure thing, but it's also not unreliable in Vintage these days to get any kind of creature into play. But what I'd really like to know is your thoughts on once this is in play. Okay. It, I mean, this thing is barely yeah. beatable once so, it's in play in Vintage today. So this thing takes out this thing takes out zero, two, four, and six. I mean, the most most obviously. Um, mm-hmm. The zero is just Chalice of the Void. Two is Young Pyromancer Oath, things like that. Four is Jace Gifts, you know, things like that. Six is just basically Desire, uh, Bargain, and Workshop, big Workshop creatures. So, mm-hmm. um, you know. Oh, two also is cards like Burning Wish. So, um, you know, Tendril's decks will have a almost, you know, really difficult time, obviously, removing this if they rely on Hercules and they can't win with Tendrils. They can mm-hmm. chain a Vapor it, but I don't think, or Nature's, you can't Nature's Claim it. You could chain a Vapor it. Um, mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I think that strategically, decks are, um, you know, one and three are probably, in many respects, bigger than, than two. I mean, certainly combined, but. You know, three is where a lot of the, the biggest spells in Vintage have always sat, like uh, Tinker and Yogwill, and Thirst for mm-hmm. Knowledge, and things like that. And and obviously Gush is converted mana cost five. And, and um, I guess this same with Force. This does hit both the Blue Delve spells because they're eight. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, sorry, Force is five too. So you know, I just think there's too many holes in this to really shut most things down completely. It'll shut down a lot of things, but um, yeah, that's that's what I would say. It's worth noting also that this can't be blocked by tokens. Can't be blocked by your monks or your elementals or even a flipped delver. Interesting. Or it also can't be blocked by spirit tokens that you may have perhaps given to your opponent in the act of getting this into play. Yeah. So that's a nice kind of benefit, right? Even if you give your opponent two or three spirits, they can't block your void winnower. Similar to the flyers like Gristlebrand and and uh, Sphinx of the Steel Wind, but obviously this card has a glaring weakness against swords to plowshares. Definitely. It doesn't protect itself from swords at all. Now, you might make the case that any self-respecting oath deck that was packing Void Winnower would also be packing a full complement of missteps and other counters that all interact with swords, which is a fair point. But unlike Gristlebrand, this card won't draw you into that protection. Gristlebrand has defense against swords in the sense that (laughs) that 7 or 14 cards is likely to stop the swords. So there's that. I think this is an interesting thought experiment, basically. But broadly speaking, if my opponent oaths up this, I guess it had it has a lot to do with the current board state and the archetype I'm playing. But sometimes this is going to be game breaking. Yeah. Like I'm just going to have to scoop, <laughs> and sometimes I'm just going to say plow it, move on. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, another another problem is that if your opponent already has Jason play, then this card doesn't work because they'll just they'll just bounce it. Um, so just, well, that can be said for nearly every oath creature. That's true, but but that's not true for Gristlebrand because Gristlebrand 
can you still have some benefit? Yeah, you you can draw fourteen cards and keep all yeah. time walk all that. Um, Good point. The the other thing is, uh, it's interesting to think about other cards that have seen print that say your opponent can't cast X, right? Like get up mm-hmm. e. Um, certainly cards like Metal Mage, but there aren't a lot of them out there. But this is no, you're right. I mean, that's the the effect started with Meddling Mage, of course. And Meddling Mage has seen play in Vintage, though not recently, not in the past several years. Same for Gaddock Teague. Gaddock Teague is fringe playable in Vintage, though not for the last several years. And the closest thing we have to it these days is obviously Sphere Effects, which prevent people from playing things universally, and then Chalice of the Void, or Revoker. Look at the effect this card has against workshops, against against current crop of workshops. Your opponent can't play Spheres, Hangerback Walker, Ravager, Lodestone Golem. They can play Tanglewire, they can play Forge Master, they, they can play Crucible, they can play Dismember. And Forge Master allows them to get around this this problem, but yes. Yes, so this card has a little bit of an issue with Forge Master, broadly speaking. But also they can't block with any of those creatures even if they're in play. Because Hangerback Walker and Ravager both have converted mana cost zero in play. Because Metamorph, Metamorph is four. Loads, Metamorph is four, yep. Lodestone, Revoker, Metamorph, can't block with any of those, can't play or block with any of those. You can Sculpting Steel against this if people were playing that. Yeah. So I would say, broadly speaking, it, assuming you have a strategic plan for what to do about Forge Master, this card's actually pretty good against shops. Now, the trick is, is they can still indirectly interact with it via Tangle Wire, so but again, Sorry. that kind of goes for almost all work, almost all with creatures as well. You didn't correct me on this, but you cannot sculpting steal this card. It's sculpting steal only copies art. Oh, <laughs> you can play sculpting steal, but you cannot copy a void winner. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely right. You can copy it with Phyrexian Metamorph. Were you to Forge Master one into play? Right. I don't know something. Something in the back of my mind says that some people are going to try this. I mean, that is to say, I know already people have tried it. I just think that in certain matchups, this narrows your opponent's options down to one or two ways to win the game, though. Swords to Plowshares is a big deal, so we, we've, we can't stress that enough. But Swords isn't in every archetype. It's not in Workshops. Broadly speaking, it's not in Oath. It's not in Delver. It's just in a couple archetypes. It's just in, in 10 to 20% of the metagame, depending on your area. Okay. And some landstill lists, for example, don't play swords. Some are just straight red-green. A red-green landstill deck against this? Good luck. Can't block with Factory. <laughs> and you can't cast Jace. Assuming this comes into play before Jace, which is not a, a sure thing, but not unreliable either. I mean, Oath decks are faster than Jace, broadly speaking, especially against landstills Jace. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think this is a really interesting threat, and I think that some people will try it. And I think a couple of players here and there were going to get blown out by it. But I I think if this became a popular part of the metagame, a, along the lines of if Brian Kelly's Oath yeah. list became a popular version of Oath, then some strategies would come up to, I mean, this, to get around This it. card, to me, doesn't make any sense other than some math nerd made this, you know, which is, <laughs> I'm, I do not say as a criticism. I think it's cool. Uh, but, I mean, thematically, I mean, I'm also disappointed that its name is mathematic, it is composed of, uh, adds up to even numbers. If each digit is is a numeral, is a number. So anyway, there there, there could be more you know ways in which uh, you know oddness is built into it. Certainly, it's power and toughness. Um, the other thing, the other thing, Kevin, is that um, it's interesting to think about which is more powerful: shutting off even or shutting off odd cards. I mean, with even you get Moxon, but the trade-off is that this card's never going to come down before Moxon. 
most at least most of them. There's a good case to be made that taking out odd is just better. Um, you know, you get one is like probably the most one is one may be, you know, the best thing you can hit. If if you if you what if there were a card that said like when you play this spell, um, name uh, name a number or say a number. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, cards of that mana converted cost cannot be cast, or your opponent cannot play. You know, what what would you name if there was a card? Let's say it was like a pith and needle, and you you play it for one mana, and it said that. Which number would yeah. name in vintage? Uh, well, depending Blind. on the situation and the matchup, it'd be one, two, or three, probably. Blind. I mean, if you don't know what your opponent's playing. You're on the play. What would you name? Well, on the play, you, you open up chalice. You open up the notion of zero. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. But broadly speaking, one is a pretty attractive option across the board. Exactly. I mean, chalice at one is a standard play in vintage right now for chalice decks. Yes. And there's a good reason for that. That's what I was getting at. Is that one? Is, but, I mean, go ahead. But that card that you have hypothetical card you've talked about dovetails with meddling mage very powerfully if in the blind one is probably the correct answer depending on your archetype i mean yeah we haven't gone that deep into it but as soon as you know the matchup games two or three then that card is a silver bullet against oath of druids yeah. it's a silver bullet against uh young pyromancer or monastery mentor i mean it, it's a it's really powerful it's, i would play it at two all day against shops right yeah assuming i have some way to answer lodestone golem um, I don't know. I just think that hypothetical card you've talked about becomes a two or a three in a lot of matchups lightning quick. <laughs> right. Um, but then, then take it to the next step. Which would which would be better? Would you rather this card take out even or would you rather take out odd? Because I would, if I had my preference, I think I would prefer it to take out odd, the reasons you just went through. Well, if you're talking about Void Winnower... Yes, I am. Then, then odd is... Odd defends itself a lot better, That's right? That's Swords to Plowshares and Dismember and a few other things. But, you know, Jace, the Mind Sculptor, is kind of a big blind spot then once you name Odd. I, I don't know. It's it, it's really matchup dependent. It's super matchup dependent. Because at even, it's, it cuts off a whole lot of simple connective tissue for a whole bunch of decks. It cuts off Young Pyromancer. It cuts off a couple of restricted cards, namely Time Walk, Demonic Tutor, Merchant Scroll. I I, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. Mm. Not something we've had to think about before, but I thought I would ask you anyway and have the listeners yeah. consider it for themselves. Consider, those of you who are thinking about Void Winner, just consider what would happen if your opponent oathed it up on, let's say, turn three <laughs> against your preferred archetype for the moment. Because a lot of decks have, are, are narrowed down to one or two cards that they can reasonably play that would still win them that game. They might be commonly played cards, but you have to have them. And that, I think that Limiting your opponent's options that way is an inherently powerful thing. So, what would you um, what would you predict in terms of this card appearing in top eights? Well, in order to make a top eight, I almost I have to believe it's in an oath deck. Yep. And I have to believe that it's taking the place of either like a Dragonlord Dramica yeah. kind of slot in Brian Kelly oath, exactly. possibly an Emrakul style slot in, in kind of a Golden Gun list, a list that plays a Gristlebrand and this. Uh, I don't think you can reasonably put together a package of oath creatures that doesn't include a Gristlebrand in this day and age. Even if you have a creative thing like Dramica in an alternate slot, I think you're still running a Gristlebrand, just like Brian was. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with your analysis. I think one of the issues is that in Brian Kelly's oath deck, all his creatures are playable, hardcastable. That's a good point. This is so this, this kind, is not really castable. Yeah, this kind of strays away from that ethic, that philosophy mm-hmm. of of using oath to 
generate some advantage, but not in the same way that traditional oath decks do. Yeah, you're, you make a good point. And <clears throat> assuming you're never going to be casting it, then cards like Emrakul are more attractive if you're assuming you're going to show and tell and or omniscience them into play. <laughs> Uh, this is just this doesn't fit that bill. This is a disruptive effect that yeah, I agree. I don't know. I mean, I think at most this is a one or a two top eight appearances. I don't think it's going to become a standard, but I think a couple of people could try it and have a little bit of success. It's it's very possible that we're missing something. Um, that maybe this is like a card you sideboard in in the particular matchup. Mm, I don't. Good point. I I don't think this beats any. I don't think this could beat a dredge deck though. Um, so it probably isn't that matchup. Oh, and you know, the way you said that just totally reminded me that this card has a huge blind spot to Grafdigger's Cage. It doesn't prevent it, for one, but also, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't help you as an Oath player get around Cage, because yeah. this card's not castable. You can cast, I cast Gristlebrand all the time in Ritual decks, but this is even harder than Gristlebrand. This is... Yeah. I, I don't think this, I don't think this is going to see play, but I, I, I'm like you, this could be a one or a two of, I'm going to say zero, I'm going to go on the record for zero. But I think it'd be mm-hmm. awesome if it showed up. I think there might be a matchup that whereby activating Oath with any other existing creature, be it Gristlebrand, Dramica Salvagers, uh, Sphinx of the Steel Wind, or Emrakul, it could be a, the case that activating Oath and getting any one of those creatures isn't good enough yeah. or doesn't disrupt your opponent enough. Yeah. I'm thinking maybe like TPS, right? Yeah. Maybe Oath versus TPS. This is better to Oath up than all of those things I just said. Maybe You may be right there. And TPS... TPS may be the deck that has the fewest answers to that, but I don't think Oath is really concerned about TPS at the moment. The other, <laughs> no, I, I got you. The other thing is that, um, unfortunately, I don't even this is I don't think you would bring this in in the workshop matchup because the this, this sort of card advantage can be translated into immediate resources, and the card that you're probably afraid most of if you're able to Oath is Tanglewire. Mm, I mean, cer- yeah. certainly you're concerned about Metamorph, which is stopped, but it doesn't stop Tanglewire. Yeah, I think you're right. I think when you said sideboard, that opened my eyes to possible appearances of this, just, yeah, for that reason alone. But, ah, boy, it seems really unlikely. I'm going to go with zero as well. I think this is funny. We talked about it half dozen times in our Magic Origins report card. I think this card passes the threshold of playability, and it's just a matter if someone chooses to. Right. And it's even less likely than some of the cards like Dark Petition we talked about, because this... Is probably, as you said, it's probably a sideboard card in Oath, and it's really narrow application. But someone might be really enamored with it and find a home. Sorry, Void Winner. <laughs> Next up, Painful Truths. Two black sorcery. Converge. You draw X cards, and you lose X life, where X is the number of colors of mana spent to cast Painful Truths. So let's be a little more diligent than we have in our first two cards. Is this mana cost played or playable in Vintage? Yep. Absolutely. Two black, most famously as Yawgmoth's Will, but it was several other cards, like, I don't know, your Engineered Plagues, your Virulent Plagues, handful of things. But we should probably put an asterisk by that whole, is this casting cost playable? Because what is the true casting cost of Painful Truths? If you really are maximizing it, it's black and then X and then Y, which are two other colors. So it's black, blue, and then whatever your third color is. (laughs) I mean, we joke, but realistically, this is going to win the blue deck. So it's black, blue, and then either red or white or green. That's the mana cost of this deck. So when you put it in those terms, is that mana cost played in Vintage? Not so much, really. But I think the but that's only because no card has really passed the threshold of playability at the Grixis mana cost or the well, 
in the I Esper mana. I don't think it's fair to say that, that this card costs Esper or Grixis. I think the true mana cost of this is Grixis or Esper or yes, you know, yes or Bug. You're right. So that that's yeah you should that's true it's a flexible it's a blue black and then X is as flexibility in the mana cost and and our analysis is going to tease out the mana a little bit more but let's talk about the effect then so drawing X cards and losing X life that's also clearly playable in vintage Knight's Whisper is always kind of on the outside uh, waiting to break through in the meta game and we've talked in our last couple episodes about how it has been played recently in Grixis shells yeah um. You know, the cards that immediately come to mind when I see this card are Skeletal Scrying, first and foremost, mm-hmm. and Read the Bones, which we already mentioned in this podcast, second. Mm-hmm. Um, both cards, you know, so so Skeletal Scrying, I mean, uh, Read the Bones is at the same casting cost um, and draws, or sees more cards, I think, than this does, even at its max. Right. And Skeletal Scrying, it's been a long time since Skeletal Scrying saw any play, but for those who don't remember, it's an instant for XB where you exile X cards from your graveyard and you draw X cards and lose X life. So as compared to Painful Truths, it would cost three black to exile three cards in your graveyard and draw X cards. It costs one mana, but it's an instant. And you have exile cards, delve cards, basically. Yeah, and it scales, so yeah, it's it's significantly different, but it hasn't seen play for many years now. So I have to go back to our Artificer's Epiphany discussion and point out that it really, really, to me, feels like Either Grixis or Esper kind of Haymaker control is the natural starting place for this card. That maybe this takes that Knight's Whisper slot that Rich Shea played a couple of months back. Yeah, in his Control Slaver deck. Yeah. This is also a card that makes great use of off-color Moxon, which is nice. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make good use of Soul Ring or Mana Crypt, which is also a huge bummer. It really is. And those decks, like Grixis Thieves, for example, make great use of Soul Ring and Mana Crypt. Oh, for sure. And so to have a card that doesn't maximize those is is a bummer. I I will say, though, on the flip side, this card has some really fun interactions with Sphere Effects. (laughs) So if you're playing Grixis Thieves and you happen to have your Pearl in play against Workshops and they have Lodestone Golem, you can tap out and play your Grixis plus white from your Pearl to pay for the Golem and you'll draw four cards. Right. We should, which is that could that that will probably come up frequently in the workshop matchups. Yeah, I mean it's interesting if your opponent has several spheres, the, but the most you could ever draw from this is five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that that's bad. Five Not is that that's a lot. bad, but <laughs> you're hoping, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about three mana sorceries then, because when we evaluate, we've evaluated a number of cards over the past few years that are at the three mana sorcery spot that draw usually two to three cards. We invariably end up talking about all of them. Yep. And invariably, at the moment, none of them are seeing play in Vintage and have it for a while. Well, the biggest biggest three mana spells in the format are Tinker and Yogwell. And they're the biggest haymakers. Uh, there's obviously Necropotes and things like that. But we're talking about, you know, it here. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think your point is well taken. That three, is, three is not what it used to be, <laughs> right? It's true. And, it's and also... The, the format is so much more tempo-based than it was in years past. Tapping out on, turn, let's say, profitably turn two with an off-color Mox yeah. to play this for three could put you in a, a kind of a hole against Delver or Mentor, for example, or Workshops, obviously, partially because not a lot of the vintage decks these days have a way to strongly buy back a lot of tempo. Ironically, Grixis probably is the one deck that's running a sweeper anymore in the form of toxic deluge yeah. 
But if you take a turn off and lightning bolt yourself in vintage, even if you did draw three cards, you're you're putting yourself pretty far behind tempo wise. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, one of the best ways to get back tempo is by playing a mentor. <laughs> Not this <one. laughs> right. You know, it's like um. So there is a three-mana card that buys back lots of tempo. Uh, but the Haymakers are just not... I mean, it's interesting. It's it's kind of a quaint thought, but there was a time where, at one point, people were seriously talking about whether Jace, the Mind Sculptor, should be restricted. Now, right. You know, now we've seen such a shift away from it, and, and Dak is just everywhere. But that's largely... And that's no small part because of Delve, and also no small part because of Workshop decks being so good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> This card is more efficient than Skeletal Scrying in the general sense, but I think Skeletal Scrying is a better card. And by that same token, I think Knight's Whisper is a better card. Yeah, two two mana, you for sure to draw two cards. I mean, there's going to be scenarios where you are going to be paying three mana to draw two cards with this card. Yes, and that is a serious bummer when we've already acknowledged that Read the Bones is seeing no play. Yeah. Let's Let's switch gears. Let's think outside the box. What kind of deck doesn't have good card draw today that this truly facilitates. Well, the one deck that always has lacked the good card draw in Vintage has been Oath. And that's why I always come back to Oath when I think about Read the Runes and things like that. Because Oath, the way Oath is configured, it just doesn't get it doesn't get Gush. We've said this in an earlier podcast. It doesn't get Gush because it has Orchards. It doesn't get Dark mm-hmm. Confidant because it's Oath. Mm-hmm. It, and then, you know, it's hard for Oath to get to the kind of a big delve spells as efficiently as its competitors when it's not oathing yeah um yeah i mean it's just that's the archetype that always is could use some really awesome like efficient draw spell um grixis doesn't seem to be hurting i mean it can use everything so i don't really think grixis like needs an awesome draw spell um Mm -hmm. and if it if it would i don't the kind of draw spell it would use would be an unrestricted thirst for knowledge or the knight's whisper that like what rich was playing yeah yeah. What about non-blue decks? No, let me take that back. Before I say non-blue, what about blue decks that don't traditionally have a lot of card draw, like Bug? Yeah. What do you think about this in Bug? Well, Bug, Deathrite Shaman can definitely make this a more reliable play. Um, you know, that's a card that synergizes nicely with this. Um, I think I think Bug tends to get a lot of card advantage through Dark Confidant historically. I don't remember what it's used more recently for card advantage. Yeah. The NYSE, the list of top-weighted NYSE, had no bobs. It was three Snapcasters and Tassiger as forms of card advantage. I'm, I'm thinking kind of like that kind of list, a non-bob list. Yeah. Once you put bob in the equation, I'm starting to worry about the life loss. Well, it's interesting that Deathrite Shaman and Skeletal Scrying have horrible synergy, but this this actually would work nicely with Deathrite Shaman in that respect. So yeah. that's a deck that would have a reason to use this instead of Skeletal Scrying. Yep, true. And this interacts positively with both... Delve and Deathrite, as you put it, and but, Snapcaster. But that's also a deck that uses the Strip Mine package, Wasteland package, and so it has a lot of color lists as well. It, yes, that's true. Most bug lists in that vein these days are Wasteland decks, but you could construct one without it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm also thinking about decks that, tactically speaking, decks that want to play this on, say, turn four, or turn three after they've done something really profitable on the first two turns. Like... I, that's what I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find that deck that wants to play something on turns one and two and maybe three and then refill on four with this. We're talking, So we're talking about an aggro deck, basically. I'm just wondering, maybe Junk or Jund kind of aggro, which is, they don't appear in Vintage at all these days, but more a Hate Bears kind of deck that uses this to refill. Yeah. Maybe a, a three or four or five color even humans deck with Caverns, but then you can't 
play this with Cam. Yeah, Caverns really is anti-synergy. Yeah, so there's no synergy there. I think the painful truth is that, is that this is a sorcerer, <laughs> which means that it's really um, you know something that you have to ramp up to, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's how most decks are sort of positioned or operating these days. Well, so we got to go back then. It plays well with Deathrite Shaman. It also plays well with Off-Color Moxen. Is there a deck that's playing Deathrite Shaman and Off-Color Moxen? The only thing I can think of is the kind of four or five color keeper style list that I made top eight with two years ago. That last list could have cast this card for value pretty reliably. I'm not sure I would have played it, but that that list did not have a good reliable card draw spell. So one or two of these might have been welcome there. The current crop of keeper style decks, like the ones that did well at champs, were the Jeskai Planeswalker kind of control decks. There wasn't, there was really no sniff of. Darth right, Death Rite Shaman style, uh, City of Brass kind of decks. Mm. Mm. I don't know. It feels like that. It feels like this could find a home as a one or two of in in seven or eight different archetypes, but but it probably won't. I feel like most of those are already saying no to cards like Knight's Whisper, which would be much easier and more reliable. And drawing three versus two is significantly more powerful, but you you're making a lot of sacrifices to do it with this card. Mm. I don't know. So, would you say that this base passes that basic threshold of playability, though? No, I, I'm. I would not. I'm not comfortable saying that. I really am not. Okay. I, you think it still falls short vis-a-vis Skeletal Scrying and Knight's Whisper, yeah. which are already on the outside and looking read in. The bones, yep. And read the bones, yeah. You know, that's a good point. I, I can't shake the notion that for three mana you can draw three cards because that ratio yeah. is is somewhat unheard of in in the last six or seven years of card development, right? And we tend to play, in Vintage, we tend to only play cards that draw you more cards than that ratio. Like the Ancestor Recalls, the Gushes, Dig Through Time is a two for two, but it's a really good two for two. Uh, Treasure Cruise is like a three for one in the common implementation. We tend to only play those cards that really cheat that ratio. Knight's Whisper saw a little bit of play because two for two is right on that threshold. And I think three for three, boy, I just can't shake the notion that it's past that threshold and therefore worth considering. I don't know. Let's not belabor the point anymore. You're, are you going for zero? I am. Uh, I don't want to pull an Artificer's Epiphany here, but mm. man, this card is really, really on the edge. Well, I'm going to go with zero. But prove us wrong out there, Brewers. The next card's kind of a fun one, but I just put it in here for, for, for giggles. Vampiric Rites. Black, enchantment. One black, comma, sacrifice a creature, colon. You gain one life and draw a card. Now, the only reason I put this in here is because of draw a card. Now, it's sacrifice a creature. It's an enchantment. I wonder if there's an engine deck to be had in Vintage still. <laughs> it seems like every other set, you and I review a card, like Pain Seer, that talks about, is there an engine deck to be had in Vintage? What do you think? Well, I think there are... Let me put it this way. Um, hmm. There are a number of cards in, in Vintage that, really, that, that trade upon sacrificing creatures, but... None of them have a mana cost, or if they do, they have a really low mana cost. Um, so, I mean, there are a ton of cards in Dredge. Let's say Sacrifice a Creature, you can, like, Cabal Therapy, you can, you know, Dread Return, you can do all that stuff. So I think I think this suffers from having a pretty intensive mana cost before you actually get any value out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is not to say that you couldn't recursively, like, put this in a deck with, like, Bridge from Belows and stuff and get a lot of value, or or even, you know... Pyromancer tokens, right? I mean, think about though, 
Hangerback Walker. Well, what I was going to say, the, the thing this really brings me back to is Skull Clamp. Yeah. Skull Clamp is one mana, sacrifice a creature. What? A one toughness creature. Yeah, one toughness creature and draw two cards. And it really sees almost no play in the format. So, yeah. you know, I don't think there's a lot of hope for something like this. But um, it is something I always like, I do like to think about as well. I just think that the problem here is the mana cost. Your comparison is spot on, and I was going to say that the last deck we had in Vintage that had any success that you might you might generously refer to as an engine deck was that Affinity deck that Adrian Becker did so well with several years ago now, culminating in some Gen Con performance. Um, and Skull Clamp was the engine in that deck in combination with Genesis Chamber and a whole bunch of cheap creatures. And I think you're right. This card competes very powerfully with Skull Clamp. Skull Clamp is cheaper, colorless, and it draws more cards with the stipulation that the creature you sacrifice has one toughness. Right. And in this day and age, given Arkbond Ravager, which is always side by side with Skull Clamp, and now Hangerback Walker, I can't imagine that this card would get the nod in in basically anything. The only scenario I can think of is similar to what you said with relation to Dredge. If the creatures you were sacrificing happen to be, say, two two zombies rather than X one whatevers. But now that I say that man, all of the creatures <laughs> that I might want to do this on in Dredge are also one toughness. Your Icarids, your Bloodgasts, your Narc Amoebas. If Dredge ever wanted to put an engine in that was permanent-based, like, involved sacrificing like this, right. Skull Clamp would just be immediately better than this card anyway. Yeah, okay. I think we've gone far enough on this. I think it's a zero. Let's pivot to a card that's similar or related to Vampiric Rites, and that's Smothering Abomination. This is two black-black creature Eldrazi, Devoid, flying at the beginning of your upkeep sacrifice a creature whenever you sacrifice a creature draw a card for three yeah this this i think really brings into focus potential engines with the card you just mentioned it costs twice as much but it has no mana so whenever you sacrifice a creature you can draw a card this could be really sick in terms of kind of loops i was thinking how you might abuse this card and there are two things that pop to mind one is of course token generation with pyromancer or mentor and with pyromancer Mm -hmm. um Obviously, you need a, an outlet to sacrifice the creature, but there, there aren't, I mean, there are a lot of ways that you can find to sacrifice creatures. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that you can throw creatures into. Um, so the cost is is that you actually need to find a way to sacrifice the creature, but then this could become a pretty sick loop. The other thing is, if you could build a dredge-type deck that isn't dredge, um, that has a lot of flashback stuff that allows you to sacrifice creatures... You could draw a ton of cards with this. This might actually be a dredge-like engine or even a dredge engine. Um, you know, I was I was trying to imagine both dread return and then also a more more heavy mana dredge deck. Um, you know, with with dread returns and cabal therapies, you could reasonably expect to draw a ton of cards in one big turn. Let's play that out a little bit. So you're talking about dread returning this into play in current modern dredge possibly, decks, right? Possibly, or it could be so, that you just get to four mana with uh, with uh, Urborg, and you have you play like Moxon and Lotus and things like that. That's an alternative, but let's let's start simple. Let's say you dredge return this into play on turn two. Now that's aggressive, but but you know not uncommon with dredge. So you've sacrificed, you've had to sacrifice three creatures to do this. Let's say it was a Narc Amoeba, an Icarid, and one bridge token. Yeah. You sacrifice those three to bring this out. And let's say you have, let's start with a single bridge. So the act of casting Dread Return probably gives you one or two zombies, yeah. depending on the configuration. Right. You put this into play, you've got, got one or two extra creatures to go with it. You're starting your loop by 
casting, flashing back a, a cobble therapy, yep. right? Yep. It's the second one of your token zombies. Yeah. So when you put cobble therapy on the stack, you sacrifice the zombie to cast it. While cobble therapy is on the stack, this triggers and you dredge. Yeah, exactly. So let's say you profitably you dredge six if you're lucky. And that probably puts another dredger of five or six in the yard. Well, in the ideal case, you would be sacrificing a token that would generate another, uh, sorry, a creature that would generate another token. So, Which is, it's hard to do that the turn you've cast this, or the turn you've dread returned to this. You're talking about needing well, four, probably four non-zombie so, creatures. So if you reveal a narco amoeba, then you're probably okay. If you don't, you might dredge a land and then play a land and get um, landfall. And Oh, I see. So you could... Well, so for your one draw, you could be dredging a Dakmore Salvage. Yeah. So your land drop on turn two could get you a Bloodgast or two back. Yeah. And then you, if you can have any more therapies or things to sacrifice creatures with from Graveyard, yeah. um, you can continue to draw cards with this. I feel like on turn two, that's challenging. Yeah. I mean, it's challenging to get more than one or two activations. Right. But probably by turn three, when you've when you've built up a little bit of a graveyard, maybe you're getting back two or three blood guests or plus an Icarid, then you're probably onto something there. Yeah, I mean, I was actually trying to think more of like a, a mana-heavy dredge deck, you know, that, that okay. uses like, um, you know, it doesn't go all in in the bazaar, but it uses, you know what I mean? It's not like I'm trying to find bazaar for turn one for sure, but it uses sure. bazaar more like dragon, old school dragon used to, and plays this card and then just, I mean, suppose you don't have, Suppose you do not have bizarre, right? But you have, right? But but you 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 play, you know, some things. You know, I don't know exactly what they would be. Um, you cast a let's say you cast a two mana creature on the first yeah. turn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An Archimeba or a Thug. And you have Cabal therapies in your deck, and you have, you know, um, maybe another discard outlet. But it, you know, Bridge from Below's. If you can, if you can get into a position where you can get some token generation going and some sacrifice outlet. Mm-hmm. You could probably draw a ton of cards or dredge a ton of cards. The question then becomes... So I don't think if you're dread returning this, I don't think there's a reliable scenario where this is just better than Gristlebrand. Or or the other cards that are used in that. Yeah, life total notwithstanding, of course. Gristlebrand is probably gonna, just going to be more reliably broken than this. Yeah, that's true. But your point about actually casting it and spending your mana yeah. in a dredge style list is... Obviously, this is superior to Gristlebrand in that respect. I don't know. It's it's tricky. Yeah, I just think that the the problem is trying to find you know so so you could imagine a lot of different engines you know but you have to piece different things together. So it's like you mm-hmm. have to put this with say what's that enchantment that used to be in the Sapperling verse combo back in the day where you you remember what I'm talking about? Goblin bombardment. Yeah, like like imagine this with goblin bombardment with like bridge from below. You could get you know if you had some sort of outlet like that. You get a lot of token generation. The other thing is just to put this in something, you know, imagine it's just in a Pyromancer type deck where Pyromancer is your your engine. Mm-hmm. Um, the question, of course, is going to be how are you sacrificing the creature, the, the tokens, besides to this every upkeep? But if you had some reasonably efficient way to sacrifice to- tokens, to do something with the tokens, there might be a way just to combo out in a single turn. Like, you know, if there is a, some artifact out there that allows you to sacrifice a creature to do something, like do damage, yeah, Altar of Dementia would be a good candidate. Yeah, or generate... You could mill yourself. Yeah, to generate mana or do something like that, you could really go infinite with this. Yeah. Well, you're definitely right. I mean, it's just it's been a long time since there was an, an engine deck that 
had more than a couple of iterations. Yeah. I would call Dredge an engine deck, basically. Yeah. yeah. But it cool. wins the game after one or two iterations, so it doesn't really... <laughs> the engine doesn't go very far. Well, part of it is that the, the previous engine decks were all loops. Like Enduring Renewal yeah. with uh, Goblin Bombardment with like some zero-mana creature, right? Yeah. You know, like uh, Ornithopter, Enduring Renewal, Goblin Bombardment. That was an, That's an infinite combo, right? Yes. Yeah. But, I was thinking more along the lines of suicide virus, though. Yeah, but what I was getting at is that the kinds of loops that exist today, they're not actual loops, but they're proximate loops in that you know, yeah. you're actually progressing. It's not a, it's not the same loop, but like because Bridge from Below is so prolific in its token generation, things like you know, and Pyromancer, things like that, that you you don't actually have to be hemmed into an actual loop. You can have right. these kind of like iterative loops as a and, well, and that's the kind of thing I was talking yep. That's kind of engine that dredges these days. It's so profitable after one or two iterations that the fact that it's not infinite is irrelevant. Yes, exactly. Because right. it's game-winningly good after one or two <laughs> that's iterations. That's what I'm trying to get at, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you've got an interesting theory, and I think a lot of the necessary pieces are there. It's just It sounds to me like it's going to be less reliable yeah. than dredge is today. Yeah. But I would caveat that by saying that a lot of the trends in dredge lately have been to add more mana. Yeah, they've been to add the land count to either go along the dark depths route and or the the barbarian ring route and petrified field. So casting your spells in dredge is a more common tactic than it has ever been before, I would say right now. But you're stressing that a lot with a four mana creature here. And and just to, to put a point on it, the line that says whenever you sacrifice a creature, draw a card is incredibly powerful. Draw engines are ridiculously powerful in Magic, and to have a, ma- a draw engine here, or at least a trigger that has no mana cost, is awesome. At least no mana cost on this card. You need you, you need to have some mana cost in the, the other spell that will actually allow you to sacrifice creatures. But so this is a card just to bear in mind for clever deck builders out there. Yeah, well, you should keep our eye on it. I'm going to go with zero, but what do you think? Yeah, me too. I, I just. I just, you know, I wanted to take this time and, and discuss with you whether we could find an engine for it. Is there any other card that actually says this, that has that exact line on it in Magic? Whenever you sacrifice a creature, draw a card? Yep, so the effect in question here has appeared on exactly one Magic card before this, and it was a Jund 3 enchantment. It says, skip your draw step. Whenever you sacrifice a creature, you may draw a card. So this is a pretty big upgrade to that effect. <laughs> it's two mana cheaper, and it's a creature that does a whole bunch of other things, like flying and have a power of four. And it, but it, it does has, have the drawback. It has a built-in sacrifice outlet. During your upkeep, sacrifice a creature, right? Still, that's a pretty big upgrade for that effect. Definitely. I mean, that's. I mean, that 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 drawback is, in my opinion, far better than skip your draw step. Yeah. Is. You could debate me on that one, but still. Yeah, I mean, in conclusion, I think this card has potential if someone could figure out basically a zero-mana way to create an iterative loop. Not infinite loop, but iterative. Yeah. Our conversation about this reminded me about something about vampiric rites, and that is, and I don't think this is a big deal, but we didn't touch on how this compares to Goblin Bombardment vis-a-vis Oath of Druids. Right. We forgot to mention that this is a a decent hoser against Oath in their orchards. Yeah. That's, now it's that's, it's susceptible to misstep, of course, but still, no, I think really, it's worth considering. That's a really interesting point, um, and it's an instant. So you could, as long as you have the mana up, you can sacrifice the orchard token and draw draw cards. I wonder if this would be like a, uh, you know what? This might be this might be a good like TPS answer to Oath if they wanted to sideboard against Oath and they didn't want to put in Nature's Claim or something like that. 
or graft diggers cage which hurts their will which they wouldn't right because yes yeah i think it's worth considering there this is not the first time there have been sacrifice outlets though that were good against oath yeah we've got goblin bombardment we've got the likes of alter dementia goblin bombardment spawning pit this is not a unique effect but this one costs one mana and the upside of sacrificing the creature is way higher than any of those cards <laughs> that's the thing because draw a card is way stronger and way way bigger of a threat for your opponent than any of those other cards i mentioned what we really need yeah i mean what we need is like a diamond valley type card to go with the uh the other creature that we talked about there you go <laughs> the cost but it has a zero act it doesn't have a tap activation um Anyway, yeah. I think we should move on. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. I think, that, but this these cards are interesting. I, I mean, I'm still gonna go zero, but because I don't think TPS needs an answer to oath, <laughs> it's just a strategic right. trump. But it's it's interesting to at least bear in mind. Let's talk about Molten Nursery for two red enchantment devoid. Whenever you cast a colorless spell, Molten Nursery deals one damage to target creature or player. I think a lot of what we said about Juriper Aether Grid applies for this card. Though not necessarily in the same archetypes per se, but I think a lot of people will look at this and say, holy moly, yeah. if I put this in a workshop deck, this is going to do a ton of damage because it's just colorless spell. Right. You. So your, your, your Thorn of Amethyst, your Chalice, your... Every one deals one. Every single one of them is a single point of damage. And it's creature or player, so it's creature removal, and it's a triggered ability, so it doesn't get shut off by Revoker. I Now, red-based workshop decks have not performed well in Vintage for quite some time. Let's just put that right up front. And I don't think this card makes that happen. It, you know, in conjunction with a number of other things, your Goblin Welders, your Juraper Aether Grids, your, your other Artifact Destruction spells, your Red Blasts. There's lots of interactions for red, don't get me wrong. But is there any other deck along the lines of our Juraper Aether Grid discussion that would just add this in for creature removal? Any deck that has red that's playing a sufficient density yeah. of colorless spells? I, I mean, don't... so... One way of answering that question is that basically every deck in Vintage is a basically a blue deck or has some splash of blue with a tiny number of exceptions. Workshop decks mm-hmm. and some like Hate Bears type decks. Um, yeah. And so flip Dredge. side of... Yeah, no, Dredge has blue. They run Narcomoeba and Chain of Vapor. Yeah, <laughs> you're right about the Chain of Vapor. I wouldn't count Narcomoeba, but your point is correct. So, so you know, uh, but what, what I'm saying is that, um, you know... The flip side of it is that you'd have to find a deck that's predominantly non-colored, not let alone non-blue. And there are no decks yeah. in Vintage that are that, except for the Workshop deck. Yeah. You could... Interesting. You could ramp up the artifact portion of a blue-based control deck yeah. higher than it is today. That's true. Thinking about the answer, I mean, a lot of the things we talked about with Aether Grid apply here, of course. You could add some chalices or some cages or some off, more off-color mocks and some other things. But it wouldn't get past a threshold that would make this more than a couple of damage. You'd have to, in my opinion, you'd have to have some kind of engine that really makes this sing. Yeah, so instead of just... You'd have to have something that's causing you to recast colorless spells. Yeah, I mean, logically, there are only two possibilities. One is that you are using this based upon the reality of how your deck is constructed, or you have a specific Mm. iterative loop in mind that will allow you to win with this. And your deck is not predominantly colorless spells. Right. And we can rule, I mean, unless workshops are going to use this, I think we can rule that out. Then the other, only other question is, is there some sort of loop? And, um, you know, that would go back to the discussion we just had. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the flag bearer for those kind of loops is Bomberman. Yeah. This does turn Bomberman into a damage kill. Yeah. But 
broadly speaking, Bomberman already has access to a damage kill right. through a spell bomb. Exactly. So, so this... And this costs more and is less good in yeah. general. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I, I don't think we need to go too much further on this. I would say there's a chance that if red-based workshops became a thing again at some point in the future, those decks would consider this card and or Jirip or Aethergrid, and my money's on Aethergrid being the winner over this. Same mana cost and card type, and the Aethergrid just allows you to use what you've got in play, whereas this relies on casting cards, so Aethergrid's far better to pull off the top in the mid-game. You can just start tapping your Moxin and Spheres and Chalices and stuff to do damage, whereas this is one one or two damage a turn thereafter. Yeah, okay. So Sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I just wanted to make one more point about the previous card, Kevin. Okay. The... the, the I think ultimately this card illustrates sort of the tension between strategy and tactics. That is, you know, a deck like Workshops has to use all of its resources, including the cards it draws, to achieve its end goal. And if it doesn't achieve that end goal, it won't win the game because the other deck will just do what it wants to do. And so this is the kind of card that while it might actually win the game, it does, I mean, while it might actually be a win condition, it will never win the game or will it actually impede your capacity to achieve your strategic goals. So. <laughs> It's the difference between a win condition and, and winning the game. <laughs> well put. Let's move on to Radiant Flames. 2R, Sorcery, Converge. Radiant Flames deals X damage to each creature, where X is the number of colors of mana spent to cast Radiant Flames. So Radiant Flames is clearly the red analog to Painful Truths. Three mana, you get some effect for your Radiance. Radiance. You get some effect for your sunburst. Oh, it's not sunburst. You get some effect for your converge. Yeah. <laughs> now, this this mana cost, we'll have the, the jokes about mana cost again, but this mana cost is playable in Vintage. There's several cards that have seen play in past and in, in, in far past decks, like uh, your Blood Moons or your man, your Moon Man, your your Rack and Ruin. Moon Man. Yeah, your, your Dak Faden, other things like that. And obviously the mana cost in this is going to be red, blue, X, just like it was with Painful Truths, basically. I think this card compares very closely, though, with Pyroclasm and with Fire Spout, and a little less so with Engineered Explosives. I think those three are the points of comparison right now. Oh, also Toxic Deluge. So those are our points of comparison. Fire Spout, there was a time when Fire Spout was actually somewhat commonly played in Vintage. You know what? I'd forgotten and, about that. That's true. What was it used and to it, kill? It could be... Well, it, it was good because it killed Lodestone Golem, but then there were... What was the creature at the time that had just come out that made Fire Spout better? It was good against the Bob Gush decks, like yeah. you know your Bobs and your Trigons and your Snapcasters. It killed all those creatures. I genuinely think we're, we're forgetting something, though. There was some key creature that the three damage did. It killed Painter's Servant. Yeah, <laughs> true. I forgot that. At any rate, I mean, Radiant Flames is decent against the, the modern go-wide go creatures, your Pyromancers and your Monks. Obviously, it only takes two spells for Monastery Mentor to live through this at three damage, so that's a major drawback. But it still hits moderately-sized Hangerback Walkers and, and or their Thopters, and it still hits Lodestone Golem and Revoker. And it's going to hit all and the Pyromancer hits, tokens. Okay. Yep, all the Pyromancer and the Pyromancer itself, and the Delver, of course. And it gets your Snapcaster Mages. It does cleanup work against monks and thopters and tokens that are left behind from other spells. And it kills notions. This card deep. is no joke. This card does a lot of damage. And I love. I actually like the fact that it's a variable here. Like the the fact that I mean, you may just want to actually just tap Soul Ring in Red Mana to play this to wipe out Pyromancer tokens while your mentor is sitting in play, for example. Uh, 
That's a good point. Whereas with painful truths, you would almost never choose to make that choice. Yeah. Possibly with because of your life total, you might. But this, there's there are v very legitimate reasons why your deck might want to do only two damage or one damage. Yeah, sure. and the variability of it, I think, is really powerful. So you know, if you're trying, to... it could be it could be played in Jeskai Mentor decks. Exactly, it could yeah. be really powerful in Mentor decks. I mean, it could be the kind of thing where you can, you know, in a Mentor Mirror, you can wipe out all of your opponent's Mentor tokens and keep yours. I want to ask a rules question though, just to clarify. So if you yeah. play this with a Mentor in play. Two triggers will go on the stack that generate the token trigger and the plus one, plus one. Mm -hmm. Both of those will resolve before this resolves. Yes, both of them will. You choose the order those two triggers would resolve in, but both of them would happen before this spell resolves. Yeah. So to illustrate your point, let's say you have a mentor and a small army. Your opponent has a mentor and a small army. All it would take is one spell before right. this. You need to play this for three. Yeah. You play a mox, and then you pay this for... Well, I was going to say two... So if you have two spells before it, you could play it for three. Yes. If you have one spell before no. it, you would play it for two. No, no, because it it is a spell. So all you. I know. Yeah, sorry, you're right. Yep. Yeah. My point is to keep all of your monks and kill all of theirs. Yes. That's, that's what I'm getting at. That's. So if you had if you had a mox before this and you played this for two, you go, you go it, mox, all, gush, all your monks would be three threes once this resolves. Yes. If you go mox gush this. You you could do it for three. All your monks would be four four by the time this resolves. And this will likely wipe and, out all of your opponent's monks. Yeah, likely wipe out your opponent's whole team, yeah. I think that's that use case right there is a pretty strong example of playability for the Mentor deck as a whole. And it's good in other matchups, too. As It's good against Workshops. It's good against Delver. It has some flexibility against things like Grixis. It's, you know, it's dead against Oath, mostly, I just, I just but wanted, that's, that's what it is. I just want to say, it, it would require your opponent to have three spells they can play on their turn to save all their monk tokens. They can save their their mentor, but even if yeah. you even if you are just able to wipe out all of their tokens, that's a huge victory. If you can save all yours and wipe out all theirs, that's a huge victory. Yeah, it's true because it means you could be way behind, and and you could you would suddenly spurt completely ahead. Not to mention the fact that you would be able to strike them right then and there. It's also worth noting, although boy, the odds of it are pretty slim. It would take a special mana base or a special build of Mentor, for example. But it's worth noting that against Spheres, this Converge effect scales up just like Sunburst does, as we mentioned with Painful Truths. So if you had Jeskai mana plus a Mox Jet sitting in play, then you could scale this up to four against Workshops, or five if you had yeah, if they have two other off-color sources. If they have a Lodestone Golden play, you're going to have to pay four anyway. So That's right. You're going to have to pay four for it as well. So it's not very good against workshops because if you're trying to get rid of Lodestone Golem, it costs four mana and you need to have Jeskai plus one in that configuration, which means you can't play like uh, Island Volcanic Island Soul Ring to kill a Lodestone, sadly. That's not going to work. So it only does cleanup duty against the small creatures, yeah. but against the modern crop of hangerback aggro decks, that's a reasonable need. I mean, you could very well craft a, a board state where you ingot Shoe or a hangerback walker and they sack it to their Ravager to make their Ravager... Well, that's a bad example because their Ravager is going to live through your flames. Hold on. Let me back that up. You ingot Chewer their Ravager, and they sack their Hangerback Walker to it to get two to four tokens. And then you play this on the next turn, and you don't need the three damage. Right. You can just play yeah. off your Soul Ring then, and then the flexibility really... Yeah, the flexibility is really a powerful against Hangerback Walker. Love it. Yeah, I love it. I don't know. I think this is interesting. I think you could also make a case for this in place of Toxic Deluge out of Grixis, because it doesn't cost you life. 
Toxic Deluge is a little better against Martello because for three mana, including a Soul Ring, it scales up against Forge Master. But but Forge Master is three five. I mean, I would say yeah. that fifty percent of the time you're going to cast this, you're going to be paying five for it. The question is, can you get five different colors of mana? But, <laughs> but it's it's true that you will often have to pay five for this. Yeah, and Grixis is the sort of deck that plays all the off-color Moxins, so yeah. it's not unheard of. And plus, if you're playing this card, it has deck construction implications. You could yeah. find yourself playing four-color control. You could take your Grixis list and splash green for Ancient Grudge, and all of a sudden, paying four different colors for this is not unheard of. Yeah. And if you draw your Pearl or your Lotus, <laughs> then you're you're off to killing Forge Masters with it. It'd be interesting to see if this card makes Lotus Petal more popular. Like, can you imagine your mentor deck? You'd probably, in your running this, I would include Lotus Petal. Fascinating. That's really interesting. We should also point out that you can't optionally scale this up to five. Your opponent yes, has to have spheres. two spheres in play for that play to work. Right. But Bell it wouldn't a, be uncommon. A thorn and a golem, or a, yeah. Yeah. It's, so it's it's not uncommon, but it's not. You can't just automatically pay five mana for this. But you make a good point. Lotus Petal is one of those cards that's kind of always on the fringe of mana bases these days. Well, and this. Yeah, this plus a couple other applications could really push it over into playable. I mean, in your deck, for example, you have if yeah. it's between Mana Crypt and Lotus Petal, and you say you have two of these, it might just incline you towards the Petal. Yeah, because Petal's quite good in, in my particular Jeskai list, what with Remora and uh, Plow. It's also Petal also has pretty good synergy with Dell. Um, yeah, true. It's worth it's like Lotus is worth four mana for a Delve spell. Petal is worth two for a Delve spell. That's exactly. Good. Yeah, I mean, anyway, so. I think this card is interesting. I definitely think this card is vintage playable, whatever that might mean, however you define it. Yeah. question is whether it will see play. So I agree with you that Radiant Flames passes the threshold of playability. And as we've discussed, at least in the Mentor example, it has some genuine upside over cards. As a, The flexibility provides value that no current card can provide reliably. Yeah. The fact that you can scale between one and three damage is highly relevant when you're a controller of a monastery mentor and associated monks. Definitely. And the, the value of one versus three matters a lot based on matchup. The one the one or two is a lot more valuable against Delver, and the three matters a lot against Lodestone Golem. You're so. playing this in a Gush deck. Gush will actually allow you to also manipulate your mana exactly how you want because the return land, you can replay it either for a color you've already paid or for a yeah. new color. Yeah, it happens all the time when you're when you're choosing the mana to cast... I'm sorry, to pool when you gush in a Jeskai Mentor deck. Yeah. But this illustrates it perfectly. Yes, with Volcanic and Tundra, yes. you can cast this for, for all three colors if you need right. to. Yeah. And I, we should point out that this scales nicely at one or two against Dredge as well. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, of course, you can might be generating tokens for them, but... But it's probably the right thing to do. <laughs> if, you, if it's your turn and they have a couple of creatures yeah. in play, it's probably the right thing to do. Yeah. All right, let's talk about how many perform. Uh, uh, sorry, appearances then. Well, well, one thing I've noticed is that that people really haven't settled on the mo- removal spell they want. You know, in the format right now, we have Electricery. We have um, what's the red red one? Volcanic Fallout. Volcanic yeah, Fallout. Yeah, we have. Um, you know, I- at least let's stick with red for the moment. Electricery, Volcanic Fallout. There is the. Um, Lightning bolt. Sudden. I'm shot. talking about mass remover- removals. There's. Oh, okay. There's the. Um, there's the red creature that has split second that's also good against monk tokens. Yeah, the um, sulfur, element. sulfur elemental. Sulfur elemental. There's, um, you know, we've mentioned pyroclasm, of course, in fire spout. Um, there's, there's more. There's, I mean, then, and if you branch out of red, we obviously get engineer explosives and toxic deluge. But, yep. but, um, 
you know, I think this I think this card fares comparably to basically all, nearly all of those. You know, they sure. all have advantages and disadvantages. So this is a really nice example of a card that situationally better, situationally worse. You know, I think the thing that concerns me the most is how to use this card against workshops. But the fact that this can kill a, a lodestone golem is is I think amazing and key. Where the fact that it kills golem puts it way ahead of way, most of the cards you mentioned. Yeah, it makes it much more versatile and flexible and, and, and even possibly main deckable, whereas those other cards yeah. are not. They're sideboard cards. That's what I was getting at. Is I don't know if this is a main deck card in Mentor or not. I think you could make a case for one in a similar way to how Grixis Thieves is playing a single Toxic Deluge at the moment. I mean, Bobby Green's list, and I think a lot of other people are. But in, in my Jeskai Mentor deck, for example, I, I don't think I would put this in the main, but I would seriously consider one or two copies in the sideboard. And if that's the case, just given the popularity of Mentor, if a number of people do that, then we're already talking about, I don't know, three to six top eight appearances probably on that kind of play alone. Does this have any synergy with Ascendancy? Not much. It does in the sense that it's a spell, right. but other than that, it, it has a similar kind of has a similar kind of synergy as does Mentor in that you can scale the number. If you're early in your Ascendancy loop, you can scale the number such that your tokens will live through it and your opponent's creatures won't. Yeah. It's pretty narrow in terms of utility, though. Fair enough. I think this is playable as a sweeper in the sideboards of other Jeskai control decks, too, like the Moat control decks. Yeah. It's Great. nice because it damages all creatures, not just non-flyers, so it gets the, those Thopter tokens that are left behind. That's a really good point, yeah. And it gets, because there's not a lot of large flyers outside yeah. of Oath's creatures in the format. I think one thing you're pointing out is, what if you're playing a deck that doesn't have black? This, <laughs> Yeah, that's because I think Deluge is better than this yeah. in terms of power and scalability, because it scales all the way up to Gristlebrand if you need it to. Yeah. This can't do that, clearly. And also, it's easier to cast against Workshops. So I think Deluge is a better card than this, broadly speaking. But You, you know what? This card might be insane in Landstill. Well, it's only a sorcery. But Landstill's the kind of deck that could use sweepers that are main deckable. And aside That's from true. Engineer Explosives, there really isn't one. But Explosives is so good, though. I don't know if this card can supplant an Explosives in a Landstill deck that has red. Now, it's interesting. Landstill is one of those kind of decks that could use a sweeper and doesn't have black. So by that standpoint, definitely. And it already heavily relies on explosives as a removal spell. Yeah. But there are certain landstill lists that run Nullrod, for example. Yeah. Like uh, Rich Matuzio's landstill list that he likes so much. This card is terrifying for Delver. This card, Delver decks, have just got to be... I mean, this is efficient enough to be main deckable. This is really terrifying for Delver decks. The, the notion that it's main deckable, though, is interesting to me. I mean... Why aren't all those other cards you listed main deckable? Let's go through them. Pyroclasm does so, not kill any any lodestone goal. Yep. Electricery and and pyroclasm is no good against monastery mentor. Exactly. Um. Electricery for the same yeah. reason. Volcanic fallout for the same reason. Yeah. Um. So why aren't people playing fire spout? <laughs> well, I think fire spout is problematic because you have to play green and red. Oh, to kill a flipped delver, you do. Because Fire Spout is walking creatures for yeah. red, flying creatures for green. So, and, and, yeah, I think that's the thing. Is, is there's not a lot of decks that are playing red and green. There's not a red-green control deck right now, basically. Yeah. Besides Oath, which doesn't really need this effect. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So the fact that this scales up to Golem and it hits Flyers inherently... I mean, yeah, it's a three-mana Wrath of God. 
<laughs> well, yeah, not that, necessarily. It, it has issues against Mentor, but it combos well with Swords to Plowshares to address Mentor. Yeah. Not You're still getting two for one, unfortunately, so I, I don't think that's not a strong plan, but it's a better plan than some other things, some other combinations. And broadly speaking, sweepers get a little better lately against workshops because of the advent of it, Hangerback Wall. It was also true that for a long while, a lot of the control decks were running, were running Dark Confidant in them, so you didn't want to run a, a sweeper that would destroy your own creatures. Uh, that's a good point, too. And Oh, so that's another thing. That's one advantage this has over Toxic Deluge, is that Toxic Deluge would still scale so that you didn't kill your own mentor, your monk tokens. Yeah. So that's those two. These two things both scale in a similar way, but this allows you to alpha strike the turn you play. Exactly. Yes. Because damage based red damage based removal with monks is synergistic because you can play it to clear the way and your creatures all got bigger. Yes. As opposed to Toxic Deluge where they shrank. They might have lived with Toxic Deluge, but this could be played the turn you kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. I don't know, as it going back to what you said earlier, I don't know if I would cut a plow or an engineered explosives from my main deck for this because plow and explosives are such efficient and, and also a little bit more flexible against things like oath. But this really strong in the sideboard this is. What if you Okay, Yoda. What if you What if you had a mystical tutor main deck? I was I was thinking that earlier too. Those decks that have mystical tutor this gets a lot better. If you're one of those oath Oath, excuse me. If you're one of those moat planeswalker kind of control decks like John Grudzina made top eight with, if that deck has Mystical Tutor, which I can't remember if he does specifically, but if you do, I think this gets a lot better there as well. And obviously, if you're Grixis and you've got a Mystical Tutor, you could seriously consider this over daily. You can also, interestingly, if you're playing a Pyromancer deck or a Mentor deck, you can just set it at one just to take out Notion Thief. <laughs> Keep all your stuff. Yeah, good point. And you only. And opposing Snapcaster Mages. And you don't even need any other spell. You just play this and your monk tokens are 2-2. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. I don't think this is going to see a ton of play, but I really feel like it's a non-zero. I feel like this is in that 1-5 to five range. Did you feel that way before our discussion and analysis, or did you just... Yeah. Yeah. I, I was confident that this was playable, but I think it's better than I thought now that we've talked about it, especially in Mentor decks. Yeah. I, I just think... I think that... Um, Delver decks have been good for so long, and this is such a good card against Delver. It, True. It, it's obviously weak to Blusterstorm, but it beats Pyroblast, Spellpierce, Mental Misstep. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that this card is a really good card if you can resolve it against Delver decks. And the fact that it's possibly main deckable and then good against a number of other decks, I think puts it over the top and into main deckability. All right, let's get to numbers then. I think this you're going to see most of these in the sideboard, but that's not bad. I still think you're going to see... Boy, how much Mentor are we going to see? It's going to see Mentor, a little bit of Moat Control, maybe some Grixis. Our next set review isn't until January, so we basically have four months, remember. Fair enough. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of a, a two to four kind of yeah. number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to overstate it. It's just a nice role player. It won't... See, sweepers, broadly speaking, haven't made everyone's sideboard. I don't have a sweeper in my sideboard, but that's probably primarily because well, I've been playing with uh, engineered explosives. Right, so you do have sweepers. You just have a different kind. You have a lot of them. Uh, granted. I, I guess I meant these damage-based sweepers. But this was a good one. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to go with I'm gonna go with three. I was going to say the exact same thing, but um, I guess I'll take the over so it's not the same. I'll go for it. Okay, all right. Let's talk about Green Warden of Marasa. 4 GG, creature elemental, 
when Green Morden of Marasa enters the battlefield, you may return target card from your graveyard to your hand. When Green Morden of Marasa dies, you may exile it. If you do, return target card from your graveyard to your hand. 5-4. What we've got here is a, a large double Eternal Witness. This mana cost 4GG is not playable in Vintage, but the home for this card would be an Oath, potentially. And it would be playing a role very similar to what Runesguard Demon does in Oath, which is oathing up a creature, which then gives you a selection, a tutor of sorts in this case. Tutor, actually a tutor with Runesguard Demon, but a tutor of sorts in this case from your graveyard. And hopefully setting up a scenario where you can possibly time walk right away or yep. just get a critical card to, to defend yourself or kill your opponent, what have you. This card obviously is... When it comes into play, it's functionally equal to Eternal Witness immediately, but the value comes in in, one, being much larger, so you can kill your opponent with it if need be, but also the second clause means that if it, if you kill it or if your opponent kills it in some way, then you get another regrowth right away. And so those of you who are looking to build kind of a value engine into your Oath deck, similar to Runescard Demon, yeah. have another alternative yeah, that reminds me of Aaron Forsythe's Eternal Witness both combo deck from many years ago. Um, but right. you, you remember that at the Star City game, the second Star City Games Open where he played? You said Forsythe. Yes, Aaron I... Forsythe. It was Aaron Forsythe. Really? He, yeah, he came to the second Star City Games Open, Power 9 event. I had forgotten all about that. Eternal Witness Oath combo. It was, it was just when Orchard had been printed, and we came with the Orchard Oath deck, and we swept yeah. top 8. Um but yeah, th this is an interesting card, and one of the things that's interesting about it is it's actually hard castable. You mm -hmm. know, one of the themes that we've talked about vis-a-vis -vis Oath in recent episodes, this is actually something that you could hard cast. It would have it would have good value, um, and then as a win condition, it's not terrible either. Um, one of the things you know that I've seen used in Oath in the local area is Sun Titan. Really interesting. As a as a as a win condition, and this kind of reminds me a little bit of that. It's in that vein at least. Now it doesn't. It's not quite as recursive, but Sun Titan is actually. I've seen that deck work, and it's pretty good. Well, so this would compete directly with that. I wasn't aware that that was happening. I've seen Sun Titan and Dredge, which has synergy right. with returning Bazaar directly and or creatures in some cases. But um, I wouldn't recommend the Green Warden for Dredge. Yeah. Although technically, it would allow you to return a Bazaar and play it. But right. if you've already, if you need to use your land drop to get to that point, right. then you can't get Bizarre back, and Sun Titan would be better probably. Right. I don't know. It, there's a possibility. There's a non-zero chance that this would be better than Sun Titan in a few corner cases in Dredge. Yeah, but not, Sun Titan's pretty rare these days anyway. Yeah, and this is not as big as Sun Titan, right. but it does have some some more versatility in a couple respects. Also, I mean, this has the extra value, meaning if it dies, you get it right away. Sun Titan has the extra value in that if you get to attack with it, you get extra value. So exactly. it's kind of a wash there. I would say yeah. Sun Titan probably wins in Dredge. But I'm surprised to hear you talk about Sun Titan and Oath. That's really interesting because it can't get Time Walk. But we have a think... yeah, we have a local player who's top four, top eight at a number of a number of events with Sun Titan Oath, and mm -hmm. I, I, he just uses it as such a value play. I don't remember whether he's assembling Time Vault combo or what. But he mm. really has a penchant for that that version of the oath. What's the creature base in that particular list? I think it's just like two or three Sun Titan. Wow, interesting. What's well, that? so Sun Titan would be better for Key Vault if it's assuming it's in your discard pile, of course, because you don't have to go casting yeah. it. You don't have to expose your key to a mental misstep, etc. 
Green Warden is better for things like Time Walk and certain critical removal spells and other tutors also. So with Runes Guard Demon, if you mill Time Walk into your discard pile, then your deck needs to be playing with either Regrowth or Gaia's Blessing or... Well, Gaze Blessing wouldn't be in your discard pile then, but or yeah. you almost will, of course. So so the Runescar Demon allows you multiple access to get to one card. This card is a little more narrow because you're dependent entirely on what gets milled. I found one version of his deck, and he has a Pernicious Deed as one of the permanents, <laughs> which is nice because it clears out the Oath, all their opposing tokens. Yeah. While, and, but he has Key Vault, and he has scroll, scroll Rack as well. Interesting. Well, so clearly there's some amount of appetite for this kind of effect in Vintage. I mean, Runescar Demon is not commonly played, but it has made top eight a couple of times in 2015. One time relatively recently, in fact, this summer. But broadly speaking, it has been replaced by Gristlebrand. So if Sun Titan is seeing play some play in Oath, then I would imagine there's there has to be some appetite for this Green Warden in that similar vein. It's not as good at returning permanence, of course, though, so you'd have to retweak the, the specific cards you mentioned. Slightly less good at getting Key Vault. That Pernicious Deed technology wouldn't really help, but you'd be better at getting Time Walk. It, it could be that this is good at that, but it also could be that it's simply inferior to Runescar Demon. Although it does cost fewer mana to cast well, you know, than Runescar does. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, I, yeah, I don't think it's strictly inferior. I think the fact that it's, it can actually be hard cast is... is critical and the other thing is that in some respects depending on how many you run let's say you only have one of these it may actually be better than runescar demon because runescar demon you know it, it really depends on how much of your library you expect to be in your graveyard or not but if you expect more than 50 percent of your library to be in your <laughs> graveyard then then this actually would give you more options than runescar demon oh that's funny and runescar is i forgot seven as yeah. compared to this six, so the castability is a is a minor difference, but the GG is actually more Honestly. makes it more castable. Yeah, because not uh, every deck that runs Runescar Demon runs black necessarily. Most do, but not everyone yeah. has to. But but the other but the other point is is you know um, you know you could if you ha- if you ran just one of this and you had mm-hmm. two let's say Cabal therapies in your deck just for value and Gitaxium Probe. Yeah, you could assemble Keyvald immediately. I was going to point that out. Yes, this is a synergy with therapy that shouldn't be uh, that shouldn't be missed. Dredge would obviously abuse this even more, but I could see an oath list that had some therapies just for a moderate disruption, and then when this gets oathed up, you get extra value right away. Extra value in more than one way, also because you get your double regrowth and you've removed your creature, so you get to oath the gate even if your opponent has a single spirit or single other creature. So there's some synergy with oath of druids baked into cobble therapy for that reason. It's worth noting that this 5-4 body is is moderately large, trades with most things on the ground, but can't compete with the other larger creatures in Vintage. It loses in a fight to Gristlebrand, Runescar, Dramica, um, most, most other Oath-related creatures it loses in a fight to, and it doesn't get through the spirits that you gave your opponent. So it's not a very good finisher in Oath. You're almost certainly going to be running this in in some kind of mixture with other creatures, a la Brian Kelly Oath. Perhaps perhaps people who don't have the interest or the stamina for trying to shoehorn Bomberman into their Oath lists would use this instead of Bomberman and, and remove the white. That seems reasonable, right? It's a similar, it's a similar type of thing. Well, it, but it's not another color. No, Bomberman, it, Bomberman has a, a host of benefits, obviously. Sure, obviously. Um, you know, especially with mana generation against prison-type decks and other things. But 
this isn't bad either. This is just, no. this, I mean, the scope for recursion here is maximal, but it's there are other limits to this card. So sure. Well, so I I'm confident that some people are going to experiment with this. I don't know. It's it's really difficult to say if it results in a better oath list than what's currently available. Yeah. But given what you've said about Sun Titan, I'm in, I'm inclined to go with a non-zero number here just because Runescar Demon, you know, put up a top eight this over the course of this summer. So there are oath people out there of almost every make and model. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna go with one because I think someone will try it. Am I allowed to say the same thing? Uh, I see no reason not to. All right. <laughs> I'll go with it. It's not our, we don't, our, yeah, it's not our standard, but we don't need to be beholden to competition between the two of us. All right, let's move on to one that we got from Twitter. Bring to light 3GU. Sorcery. Converge. Search your library for a creature, instant, or sorcery card with converted mana cost less than or equal to the number of colors of mana spent to cast Bring to Light. Exile that card, then shuffle your library. You may cast that card without paying its mana cost. So a couple of notes up front. You can't get artifacts, planeswalkers, tribals, or lands. <laughs> you can't get artifacts, planeswalkers, or lands with this. So there's no cheating Time Vault into play. There's no cheating Jace into play, unless it's Jace, Friends Prodigy, of course. Also, the you may cast this card without paying its mana cost, there's, it's always kind of a confusing concept in templating, but what that means is during the resolution of this spell, you may cast it. It doesn't say as long as it's exiled this way or something like that, like uh, some other cards in the past have done. You have to choose right when you, cho- right when you pull it out of your library whether or not you're casting it right then. So that out of the way, this is a, a interesting tutor for creature, instant, or sorcery that... Assuming you're paying GB, you can get a two mana or less. Assuming you're paying a third color, which you probably would be in Vintage, or this deck that plays this card, then you can get a three mana something to, quote-unquote, cheat into play. Can you list all the analogs to this card in in the game? What kind of analog are you referring to? The searching and playing? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of, like, a choir, right? Oh. Well, there's, there's a ton of them because... What you're saying is land would be in scope there. Yeah, but this is this is a card of that nature, right? Bribery acquire, right? Um, it, it is. It's comparable, I would say. Bribery and acquire specifically search for one card type and put it directly into play. So this spell allows you to get sorceries and instants, which is not to be underestimated in vintage, right? You can search out Yawgmoth's Will and play it with this. You can search so out Tinker broad- and play it, although it's just, it's well, you still want that. It's the same class of card. It just has a wider scope of application and different effect. Uh, yes, and also you're searching your library, not your opponent's. The two examples you listed were your opponent's libraries. Yes. But but all of that being equal, yes, it's in that it's in that same class. And if you pump four or five different colors with a mana in this, you can get a four or five ma- mana card. Yeah. So it automatically there aren't what there can, aren't many. It's not like a natural. It's not like a natural order. Can't get a big model. no. It, you, you don't get to cheat on mana cost is really the lesson here with acquire or bribery or oath of druids or show and tell or anything that lets you do something similar to this. You're uh, a huge amount of the value in vintage or tinker, for example. You're getting to cheat on mana. You're getting to pay three and getting something that costs eleven or twelve in play. This doesn't allow you to do that. The value here all has to come from the tutor, the toolbox, the the right tool for the job. When this resolves, that's where the value is. So your key vaults are good candidates. Obviously, both halves of that combo are <clears throat> are 
always castable with this, assuming you paid mana for it in the first place. And assuming that three mana is probably the sweet spot for this in Vintage, then your Yawgmoth's Wills and your Tinkers and your Necropotence and your Oath of Druids are all good candidates. You can get Ancestor Recall if you're in a pinch and you've got nothing, nothing more obvious to do. I'm of the opinion that there are a lot of tutors currently seeing play in Vintage that A, don't necessitate splashing a third color necessarily. Let's say Demonic Tutor for example, and B, not even all of them are seeing play these days. And another card in that vein is Tezzeret. So Tezzeret plays a very similar role to this card. It's mono blue, it searches out both halves of Key Vault, and it has a lot of upside also. Yeah, this card does not find artifacts, though. You know, what's right. what's interesting is this card actually reminds me of the card I submitted on Magic Invitational, which nice. was a tutor that had a base cost, I think, of black, and then you could pay one of every color, and then depending on which color you paid, you we would find a specific, that kind of card. So for black green, you would get a land. For black red, a sorcery. For black blue, an instant. Black white, an enchantment or artifact. You remember that? No, I don't. That's that's a good design. They may have that in their back pocket for later. <laughs> it kind of reminds me a little bit of this in that. It does. Yeah, the color the color has an influence, except it, here it has it on the mana cost. You're getting about as much value as you can out of a five-mana tutor here. But honestly, Vintage has gone so far away from haymakers, so to speak, yeah. like your your Tinkers and your Yawgmoth's Wills at the moment. That And we've, we've recently talked a lot about Dark Petition, which shares a lot in common with this card, I think, uh, in practice, that I just don't think that the five-mana for the tutoring utility effect is worth it when there's so much more efficient tutoring and or so much... Card, cards that are so much more broad in application, like your catch-all cards, your Dak Faden, which plays multiple roles, your Engineered Explosives, which ironically has Sunburst, where this has Converge, but still plays multiple roles. I just think the cost of the flexibility here is far too high. And if you wanted, in a blue deck, if you wanted a five-mana game ender, <laughs> or a card that was going to find a situational answer, I actually think Tezzeret is still a better card. Searching out Key Vault... Searching out uh, Graft Digger's Cage, searching out Pithing Needle, just a, a, a small toolbox a la Trinket Mage is probably better than this card, broadly speaking. Yeah, I completely agree. I think all the points that you made are really excellent, especially the point about the shift away from Haymakers to consistency. And the investment of five mana into this spell is enormous. That would be one mm. of the most expensive spells in any deck that uses this card. And the value would have to be commensurate. So I'm, I'm going zeros. Yeah, same here. There is one more interaction about Bring to Light we should mention, and that is that the interaction with spells that don't have a mana cost. Your Hypergenesis and Living Ends of the World, no stranger to formats like Modern, but you can't, well, you don't have as good of a deck when all, all the parts are put together in Vintage for decks like that because you can't play all the Vintage Accelerants. You can't play Moxon, you can't play Black Lotus and Sol Ring and such. So while that decks like that do play a lot of accelerants, like spirit guides and such, to to speed out those three mana uh, cascade spells in modern, the decks like that aren't as reliable in vintage because counter spells are far more prevalent and they're faster, broadly speaking. Flusterstorm is a main deck card in vintage, and also you just don't have the reliability of your mana. If you play two spirit guides to play a three mana spell on turn one and it gets countered you don't have two spirit guides on the next turn to play another three mana spell. So that's the reason why those decks don't ever really succeed in vintage. Bring to light allows you to search out a copy of hypergenesis or living end or the other three that are a little less relevant 
so you could build a more vintage deck that had all the other good cards you wanted, all the Ancestral, Time Walk, Mox, and Lotus, and get to your five mana much quicker, and probably about as fast as you could get to three mana in Modern, and search this out, and then play maybe only one of your one or two copies of these no no converted mana cost cards, like so like you like would in Modern. One? Well, in Modern, the, the most popular one is Living End. So in living, the Living End deck in Modern has a whole bunch of cycling creatures. The creatures that cycle for zero, like two life or one mana. And you cycle a couple of them into your discard pile, and then you tutor up Living End with a Cascade card. In Vintage, that respond, that that tactic is going to be pretty unreliably slow. And also, there's all kinds of graveyard hate that stops Living End from being viable in Vintage. So there's that. The flip side would be Hypergenesis, where you load your deck up with Emrakul and Gristlebrand and other fatties and just try to cheat one or two of them into play on the first couple of turns, a la Show and Tell. There's probably a little bit more balance to that in Vintage. You could hybridize Oath of Druids and Bring to Light with Hypergenesis and use it like an alternate Show and Tell. So there's a chance there's an application for that, but... Broadly speaking, I think these cards are just much worse than Show and Tell, and Show and Tell is already not a four of. So, I, I think there's a possible application for which there's already a better version in play. So at any rate, I think that interaction is worth pointing out, but I don't think the result is anything that's actually better than what you can play in Vintage today. I'm excited to talk about Kiora, Master of the Depths, two green blue Planeswalker Kiora, plus one untap up to one target creature, and up to one target land. Note the end. Minus two, reveal the top four cards of your library. You may put a creature card and or a land card from among them into your hand. Put the rest into your graveyard. Note the and or and the graveyard. Minus eight, you get an emblem with blah, blah, blah. You get three giant octopi and you win the game. Starting loyalty of four. Now, I don't mean to deride that emblem. It's probably game-winning in Vintage in a lot of contexts. But <laughs> the, the, emblem, the emblem is quite it's, odd. Well, it's unique. I'll give you that. <laughs> Instant army, 24 power worth of, worth of uh, tentacled creatures, and they mow down your opponent's creatures. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and when that happens in Vintage, I mean, you should probably earn high fives all the way around, honestly. It's one of the cooler uh, Planeswalker Achievement unlocked. But let's talk about those first four abilities, or two abilities, I mean. For a four-mana Planeswalker, the mana cost is not technically played in Vintage, but playable by any Mm -hmm. standard definition. In fact, you and I both were very interested in the original Kiora, which has a, you know, playable abilities, and I tried it out in a tournament. It didn't do so well, but so so well. This new Kiora, though... Our, our Our analysis of the original Kiora is that there would be space for it to be see play if Jace had been <laughs> Jace the Mind Sculptor, yes. Yes, I think that's a fair summary of that. Some synergy with multiple things, but ultimately not enough power. One of the major downsides of the original Kiora, though, was that for four mana, her plus ability was just not strong enough. It wasn't it just wasn't good enough. Even if you were keeping a creature at bay, it just wasn't good enough. This Kiora, though, her plus ability untaps a creature and a land, so it's it's tacitly mana generating. And depending on what that creature is, it might be generating multiple mana. A lot of people, when this was first spoiled in the vintage circles, immediately went straight to Deathrite Shaman as the creature you would untap. Because Deathrite Shaman speeds out this Kiora, 
it untaps with the plus ability and it's a creature to be revealed to the second ability. So broadly speaking, mana generating creatures have a ton of synergy with this Kiora. So your Deathrite Shaman or your Noble Hierarch are probably the best candidates in Vintage for that. This plus ability also has some synergy with utility lands. So you could cut two activations out of a library. You could cast her using a Wasteland or a Strip Mine and then untap it and use its ability or any, any number of other utility lands. And her minus ability. So you look at four cards and you can put a creature and a land in your hand. Now, obviously, in order to be maximally effective, your creature is going to have to have a certain density of, sorry, your deck is going to have to have a certain density of creatures in it. And since you're promoted to playing creatures that have tap abilities with her first ability, then that doesn't seem like that big of an issue. You would probably start, a shell of this would probably start very similar to modern bug lists, because you're going to have Snapcaster Mages to facilitate the graveyard synergy of her second ability, as well as being a creature. You're probably going to explore Baby Jace, because Baby Jace has both a tap ability synergizing with her plus and a graveyard-based ability synergizing with her minus. Seems like an obvious one there. And broadly speaking, you're going to want a few other creatures, a few other utility creatures like your Trigon Predators, like your uh, Tassigers to go with the graveyard synergy some more. Uh, you know, the, the list kind of builds itself a la the list that top eight at NYSE. And uh, it it's obvious, seems like an obvious starting place. Uh, Steve, I've explained all the basics, I think, from my perspective. What do you think? Well, you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, I think your analysis is exactly right. And I think the starting point for the analysis is the place, that, the premise that you need to have a certain density of creatures to make this worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And that automatically pushes you out of a, basically many of the blue decks in the format into something that's more bug-like. Yeah. I believe bug has probably around a minimum of 12 or so creatures and probably closer to 15 yeah which you probably have to up those numbers a little bit. So you're looking at Deathrite Shaman, Snapcaster Mages, probably Dark Confidants, probably some mixture of certainly Trigon Predator. But in addition, you know, you might have things like Click or who knows yeah. what else. Well, but, um, it's worth noting, you said 15, which is obviously the sweet spot for one in four so that her ability would on average would tend to hit a creature for you. You'd probably want to cheat a little higher I, than that. I would also, also sorry, I just want to add that I think you'd want to try to find as many creatures that double as spells as you can for utility. Yeah. So your Snapcaster and your Baby yeah, so Jace. Yeah. You're probably going to be playing both Mini Jace and, and Snapcaster Mage. Like probably you said. five to six of those total. Maybe even yeah. more. I mean, Snapcaster, both Snapcaster Mage and Jace have ridiculous synergy with yeah. this card because, because it puts stuff into the graveyard, which is the exact best place you want that stuff for both of those cards, yeah. as well as Deathrite Shaman. It's interesting, though, that um, the first ability with Deathrite Shaman into play is basically generate two mana. Yeah. So, But I mean, the usage of this card is likely to be that when it comes into play, you're going to do the minus two. And then the next turn, you're either going to minus two again or you're going to plus one and then minus two the turn after. So the turn it comes into play, let's say... What? I don't know if I agree with that. I think in the deck we're discussing... It has a lot to do with what the other one and two mana spells are in the deck. A deck like this is going to have Abrupt Decay in it, almost certainly, probably three or four. And I can very well see, if if you're casting her with a Death Rite, I can very well see the default action being to plus her, to untap a land and a Death Rite, leaving open Abrupt Decay to turn you player. Fair enough. But but that's splitting hairs, though. Go on. um, Well, I was just going to point out that... um, So, assuming... let, Let me step back, actually. So... Planeswalkers in Vintage generally have one 
central characteristic. They draw cards. Playable planeswalkers draw cards. But actually, that's not entirely accurate. What they actually do is they generate card advantage. It just so happens that Jace is so <laughs> sculpted our minds <laughs> about how we think about planeswalkers in the format, you know, both Jace and Dak. But what's interesting is Dak does not, I mean, at least in, initially, he doesn't generate neither Jace nor Dak in the first activation have the chance to actually net card advantage. This card does. Oh, that's interesting. That, to me, is one of the things that is most impressive about this card, is that its first minus can actually put it, you can put two cards into your hand, of the land and the creature, which means that if you find, for example, Snapcaster Mage, a Wasteland, an Abrupt Decay, and a Flusterstorm, how amazing is that? Right. Yeah, you've put <laughs> virtually three to four cards into your hand, really. Exactly. That's what so I'm getting So much selection yep. value, yes. Wow. I think, so once you look at the mana cost of four and the fact that this, that in the, a vacuum, she can generate mana card advantage by herself occasionally quite well at two for one. But once you put those basic tenants behind her, you know, four mana, she's blue. She has the potential to create card advantage by herself. Those things I think are a basic tenant of threshold for playability and vintage. But then you add in all the synergies, all the ways that she can make so many pieces of this, this hypothetical bug deck better. She improves Deathrite Shaman, she improves Utility Land, she improves Snapcaster and Jace, and she improves any spells with Flashback that we haven't really talked about. There's just all that synergy baked on top. I, I can't imagine people aren't going to try her. <laughs> uh, I don't really know what try means anymore. <laughs> Is try, I try, do you mean something like brew a deck with her and, like, throw it around or do you mean like brew a deck and take it to a tournament or do you mean like which of those do i you mean, mean the latter i'm talking i'm talking about matt murray's approach with baby jace i'm talking jace. take this put together a deck that maximizes its synergies take it to a tournament and maybe you make the top eight maybe you have a winning run let, let me be clear i don't think this is as good as baby jace mm -hmm. i think we grossly underestimated baby Fair. jace i think the card is insane i think baby jace Let's 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 go back to Baby Jace for a second because it is a planeswalker mm -hmm. and it also so Baby Jace I think it could be really good with this card but Baby Jace has the capacity to generate insane card advantage within the space of three turns so as soon as you activate it he can replay a gush or a delve mm -hmm. spell then you have to do his other ability but in the turn after that you can do a gush or a delve spell so he is actually the only other planeswalker who can actually net card advantage the immediate on the first activation. That I can, I mean, that's, that's playable in Vintage, besides this... You're talking order. about the card so advantage I, that comes from the resolution of a card like Gush. I'm sorry. Exactly. He's only plus or, one card or, by casting it, but, yeah. Yeah, Gush or Dig yeah, Through Time. sure. I mean, so so I think we, I mean, I just think Baby Jace is insane. But this card, um, I mean, certainly could boost Baby Jace in a lot of ways. And we haven't mentioned the likely candidates for Flashback, either. The Bug Decks like the one that we keep alluding to, the Snapcaster, Abrupt Decay, Tassiger kind of list, doesn't include any native flashback cards at all. But it wouldn't be a stretch for a deck such as this to include a, a couple of flashback cards, and the best candidates are probably Ancient Grudge or Cobalt Therapy. Now, obviously, Ancient Grudge necessitates flashing a fourth color. Splashing, excuse me. <laughs> splashing, that's funny. Yeah. Kiora. Um, but you're playing Deathrite Shaman, so the splash is not that different so i would say that 
it could be that I mean it it won't be every time or anything, but any reveal with Kiora's minus ability that includes a ancient grudge and a snapcaster mage or a baby jace and a land, that's almost like you drew three cards. Just straight up three cards. Exactly. That's that's huge. That's really huge. And and boy. You know, we talked about the synergies of the other Kiora, and we talked about how good she was with things like Lotus Cobra and Gush, but the truth is, is we were reaching pretty hard for her first ability to be relevant, and we were expecting that you would just minus her twice and get basically two explorers out of the deal, kind of. And that was, I think that was more of a reach than this Kiora is. I think this Kiora is automatically synergistic with a lot of things that are proven to be successful already in the format, and... I don't know. I think I think this this is I think this card is destined for some brewing. Well, let me just point a couple things out. So I actually pulled up Justin Beckert's Bugfish deck from NYSE. Sure. Look at his creature package. Four Death Right Shaman, three Snapcaster Mage, two Trigon Predator, two Tassiger, one Notion yeah. Thief. Bear that in mind. Now look at his some of these other spells I'm gonna mm-hmm. highlight. Two Jace, two Thought Scour, one Liliana. I mean, what if this just replaces Jace in that deck? Isn't this? I mean, he also has a treasure cruise and mm-hmm. and three and three dig. Yeah. I mean, so you know, I, I don't know. I mean, if what if you put in some baby jaces over the Tassigers, and then you had you know Kiora over the regular Jace? You have Thought Scour here. Thought Scour, whose function is in part to boost Snapcaster Mage, Deathrite Shaman, mm-hmm. all that stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, that, I mean, that so, deck is, is banking on getting value out of its graveyard over the long terms. That's the first deck to play Thought Scour in Vintage in maybe ever. <laughs> so so Thought so, so Kiora is kind of like a little Thought Scour. She's right? kind of like two Thought Scours. Yeah, so she she gives you the creature and the land and puts the other cards in the, in the bin. It's exactly what you want. And let's also not forget about this. This is important. She's Thought Scour with selection. Even, She's a better Thought Scour. Yeah. I was gonna. I think I wanted to add one more point though, which is that four cards is actually a lot of cards, <laughs> and and if you are just activating it, you know, almost turn over turn, turn over turn. You can't activate it turn over turn, but but just the mere fact of using dig through time and this together means that you're probably going to be able to chain into the card that you want fairly consistently. So for example, if you want to, if you have four wastelands and you want to follow up with a wasteland pretty much consistently. Mm-hmm. I think you may be able to do that with this and dig. Plus dig? Uh, well, yes. If you follow because, this with dig, you're seeing like 12 cards, aren't you? Yeah, so you're, you're going to be able to find the next <laughs> wasteland. So you're seeing a fifth of your library. Exactly. Exactly what yeah. I'm saying. You're right. Four cards is a lot of cards. Anyone who's cast Impulse can appreciate how good it is. And she's going to get, like I said before, she's going to get two hits at those four cards. But if one of them has any kind of graveyard synergy at all inherently then it's like she's get three hits out of four cards now occasionally you're gonna whiff i mean that's gonna happen but whiff with her means you're probably only getting one card the collection of things that would have to happen for you to get nothing out of her assuming your deck is built correctly would would, i mean the stars would have to line up pretty pretty poorly for you even if you whiff entirely if you have death right shaman in play or snapcaster mage in Mm -hmm. hand you're going to get value. Oh, that's a good point. Even if you flip four spells or a couple of Moxen and a couple of spells, if you're already holding Snapcaster or you already have Baby Jason player about to flip, then or or a dig or in a hand. dig, yeah, you get all. Yeah, that's right. Your deck is just made to get value even out of the worst case scenario. 
Oh, we should also note that turn one Deathrite, turn two, let's say Baby Jace, turn three yep. Kiora. If you act, baby Jace if you act. activate your Kiora, your Baby Jace is almost guaranteed to flip, regardless of what else has happened. I completely so agree. that's also some good synergy. Is that she puts at least two cards in, in your discard pile upon her her minus two, and that's probably enough to get your Baby Jace to flip. And it especially if you've used the Baby Jace, so another card goes right, to the graveyard. Right. Or, and, and if it's not a priority for you to flip, or you, you don't have the mana to spend the cards for whatever reason that turn, then you plus her, and you get an extra loot out of Baby Jace, so you're still getting more synergy. You're still getting extra Thought Scours. This is, we might just want to call this Thought Scour.deck, because you kind of end up playing about eight Thought Scour effects. It's yeah. Hilarious. I want to point out two little bit subtle things. Mm-hmm. One is that the ability says that you may put a creature and or land into your hand. So if you wanted to, you could put them into the graveyard. Mm-hmm. So you could, let's say, you know, I really want to flip this Jace, and I don't really need this additional, I don't know, Verdant Catacombs. Right, <laughs> I was going to say Verdant Catacombs. Yeah. I'm just going to bin it, and so my Jace can That's flip. That's true. So you have flexibility there, and, you know, little pro tip right there. That's right. The other, the other thing is, that I, I think is the one of the drawbacks of this, is that you have to reveal the cards, and that's not so hot. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that comes with the territory when you're looking for specific card types and an ability like this. So you are losing the element of surprise when it comes to the creature in hand, which is worth noting. And in some matchups, if it's Snapcaster Mage especially, in some matchups that will that will matter a lot. <clears throat> well, Steve, I, I really think we've evaluated this thing enough. I mean, we could brew decks until the cows come home, but I think both you and I agree that she's playable... I am optimistic about, especially given the trends via Baby Jace and Snapcaster lately and some other things, I I think that she's definitely going to catch some Brewer's eyes, and I won't be surprised to see a short listing of top eight finishes with her. You think she's just better than Jace, the Mind Sculptor, in the bug deck because of the number, amount of synergies? It's hard to say, because she doesn't, she doesn't deal with creatures directly. Jace, the Mind Sculptor, is playing some serious duty on creature or control in that list because abrupt decay doesn't hit Gristlebrand or notion uh, our notion thief or um what am i trying to say lodestone golem but by the same token chase the mind sculptor is not a really good anti-mentor or pyromancer tactic um so that's that's true yeah absolutely i just think that to, to use one of your uh patented phrases I, I think she is situationally better and situationally worse than than jace the mind sculptor in in this deck but the synergies are huge she has more synergy with this style of deck than any card you can almost you could you know craft in your mind it's 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 unbelievable and that amount of synergy just cannot be denied yeah she's thought scour and she fuels everything else yeah it's crazy thought scour dot deck so at any rate i am going to predict it's not a lot i just don't that bug deck hasn't been tearing things up it made top eight at nyse it didn't do very well at eternal weekend let me go first. I know Jimmy McCarthy felt quite good about his bug list, but he didn't end up placing very highly at Eternal Weekend. May I predict first? Why not? I would like to say three. Yeah, three is a good number. Three is a good number. Um, boy, three is the kind of number that puts pressure on me because four would be... <laughs> so let's look back at Baby Jace, right? We misevaluated him, so there's that. But even though he was embraced by a short list of people... He only made five top eights in our the time period in question. Now, you and I both expect that number to go up, so I'm not trying to split hairs, but 
Yeah, I expect it to go up dramatically. Yeah, so Baby Jace may have been under-embraced by the community as well. <laughs> and so if Kiora yep. is embraced the way Baby Jace was, then I would expect there to only be you know, two to four top eights. But if she, if she yep. puts that deck above a certain threshold of competitiveness in the metagame, right. then it could kind of spiral out of control. She could bug, bug, yeah. bug could become a staple of top eights for a short period of time. I don't expect that to happen quickly. It might happen, but I don't expect it to happen quickly. So I'm going to lower my expectations based on the sort of adoption rates that we have in Vintage these take days. Under. Yeah, and I'm going to take the under at two. What's interesting, I just want to, since you mentioned Jimmy McCarthy, mm -hmm. his third place deck of the Vintage Prelim is on Eternal mm -hmm. Central. He's playing almost identical deck from just a glance as is the Beckard's yeah. list. That was his he inspiration. Has the same yeah. He has four Deathrite, three Snapcaster, two Trigon, two Tassiger, one Notion Thief. He also has basically this, almost the same counterspell configuration, I think. And he has two Jace, but I don't see the Thought Scour in here. But he does, oh, sorry, there's two Thought Scour and he has three Dig, just the same. So it's clear Thought Scour is important in the strategy to fuel yeah. Dig. And Snapcaster. I mean, that's part, and Snapcaster. Yeah. And so this card, I think, I think that since this deck has removed Dark Confidant, it's lost a bit of that card advantage edge that's trying to compensate with, with Dig and mm -hmm. Jace. But I think this card is a really nice mezzo measure. It can generate really significant card effects. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Jimmy, if you're listening, we're looking at you. Let's move on to Sire of Stagnation. Four, blue-black, creature Eldrazi, devoid. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under an opponent's control, that player exiles the top two cards of his or her library, and you draw two cards. Five, seven. Now, I put this one on this list because I think it bears a strong comparison to one Consecrated Sphinx, which made second place at Vintage Champs this year, one copy in the Grixis list. And I think the notion of having a, a large but still reasonably castable significant body that has card advantage baked in it is worth acknowledging in a Vintage context. But there is a pretty big difference between the trigger conditions here. Definitely. And... And I don't know what to make of that just yet. Uh, because it's easy to say, well, Sphinx is has some inherent value in that if you simply cast it when your opponent's tapped down or tapped low, then you're going to get some draw out of it, and then it doesn't matter if they plow it or destroy it of some, in some manner or another. This Sire of Stagnation does not have that benefit. Your opponent can quite possibly often, in Vintage, defeat you without playing any more lands. <laughs> and it wouldn't be uncommon for that to happen. That said, the Sire of Stagnation has a couple of other benefits. It doesn't have flying. It does have one more point of toughness, which is not that big of a deal. The difference between 6 and 7 is pretty minimal. But ironically, the Devoid aspect makes it immune to Red Blast and Pyroblast, which are common solutions to the Sphinx problem, <laughs> both on the stack and in play, which is, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a small benefit. Both cards are immune to Dismember. Both cards die to Swords to Plowshares. So they overlap in their, their drawbacks and their benefits in a number of cases. This this one, however, doesn't pitch to Force of Will because it's Devoid. And I, having not played with Sphinx a great deal in Tournament Magic, I've played it a lot in testing, but in tournaments, no. I genuinely don't know how much how much of a problem that's going to be. The flying, however, I can see being a large problem because, I'm sorry, the lack of flying for the Sire because the ground in Vintage is frequently clogged up with the tokens, Mentor or Pyromancer, and incidental creatures, utility creatures, like the bug deck we just talked about with its uh, 
at Snapcaster Mages and such, which can play chump, chump block duty on a Sire of Stagnation for quite a while if there's a stream of them. And in workshop cases, it might be ironic to say, but I think the flying of Consecrated Sphinx, while it won't come up, while it won't enter play very much versus workshops, is probably hugely significant because workshops these days are primarily a ground-based attack. Hangerback Walker tokens are adjusting that that calculus right now, but aside from Steel Hellkite, workshops are traditionally entirely on the ground. So it's cute. It's cute that flying matters. Yeah. Well, for certain roles of creatures, like like a big finisher, the way Sphinx is, I think I think it's it's amplified in its significance. So while I think these two bear comparison into the roles they would play and their functions, I don't think Sire has enough advantages. Being devoid and one more toughness, I, I don't think it has enough advantages to uh, to justify inclusion over the Sphinx. It's worth noting that if you were to ramp it into play either via mana acceleration or something like show and tell, it could have a bigger impact than Sphinx does. If your opponent is stuck having to play lands and some of those lands are fetch lands, you could, in those rare scenarios, draw more cards than the Sphinx. But due to its mana cost and the position it plays in the decks that it would go in, that's going to be rare. That's going to be single-digit stuff. Anything to add on the, the Sire? Well, I, I think um, the Consecrated Sphinx shows up in the answer. The answer does not play black. Granted, the context I was thinking of was almost entirely in Grixis, but you're completely right. The other thing is, um, and not only does it not play black, but it would be unlikely to splash back <laughs> black from before that. Definitely. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, the other thing is that um, I think the most potent use of this would be to find a matchup where the deck has to play a land. You know, but the, the the problem I keep running into is the problem you've already identified, which is that there's a certain point where vintage decks don't really need to continue to play lands, except for gush decks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once Dredge has played its bizarre, it technically doesn't need to play another land for the rest of the game. And this mana cost suggests that you, if you could resolve it against workshops, it would be certainly to a point in the game where they could consider winning without ever playing a land. It would right. probably be at its best against gush opponents, if you've, if you, as you've accurately highlighted, because... Those decks are the sort that are incentivized to continue playing lands even into the late game. Exactly. They make land gush decks continue to make land drops. Yeah, exactly. So you would theoretically be disincentivizing gush by playing this, but <laughs> in comparison to consecrated sphinx, not as much. <laughs> All right, I'm going with zeros on the sire. Me too. All right, that was fun. Another workshop-based role player. Aligned Hedron Network, which is a hilarious name that makes me think of makes me think of maximizing maximizing shareholder profit and on the you know synergizing <laughs> our our strengths and weaknesses. Anyway, four mana artifact. When Aligned Hedron Network enters the battlefield, exile all creatures with power five or greater until Aligned Hedron Network leaves the battlefield. Did we get this suggestion from a viewer, or was this your idea? This was my idea. <laughs> Okay, this is a five four-minute artifact. That exiles creatures with five power or greater until aligned Hedron Network leaves the battlefield. The reason I brought this up is because this is a way for... uh, This is another way, I should say, for Martello to address Oath, basically. Answer creatures in the mirror. Yeah, I was going to say, this this looks to me like a mirror tactic, like an anti... So this is the kind of tactic, if you're playing the low low mana version of the deck with Arcbound Ravager and... And Hangerback Walker, you deploy this thing to fight the decks that have all the other things: Koldotha, Sun, uh, um, 
worm coil engine, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah Thundering Titan, um, as well as Steel Hellkite, and even things like Triskelion or Duplicant. Yeah, well, tri- it wouldn't be very good at fighting Trike. Trike would just lose a one counter. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, Trike is 4-4. Trike would have to be carrying equipment for this to apply to it, but still. Yeah. <clears throat> so, sorry, I, I agree yeah, with you. Not- I mean... Uh, it it would have certain interesting applications in certain workshop mirror scenarios. Also, the technology that the the Farinos and and Nick Detweller came up with for their Terra Nouveau, the the Dark Steel Juggernaut, is pretty well hosed by this as well. But also, broadly speaking, it's yet another in a long line of of things you could tutor up that that hit Gristlebrand. That's actually a really important point. The the deck that the NYSE folks designed for Vintage Champs was built around in no small part. The juggernaut. This is a way that the in the workshop mirror you can remove a juggernaut, and there aren't many. <laughs> yeah, there aren't many. The the best bet is frequently to copy it <laughs> and just block. But but your point is well made. So unfortunately, when it comes to addressing oath creatures, Gristlebrand being highest on the list, if you've got a a resolved and active Forge Master, then usually you're better off just copying the Gristlebrand than removing it. You could go for duplicate if you had it, but duplicate's a little underrepresented in the in the, more, the metagame these days. Players tend to prefer metamorphing the Gristle brands. I think this is a nice alternative, but unfortunately, it's funny. This is modeled after the Oblivion Ring detention sphere kind of model, whereby it detention spheres all of the the associated creatures while it, as long as it's in play. Those cards have made a name for themselves throughout history, partially because there were enchantments and rarely removed now not entirely not not zero percent but the point is is you could play an oblivion ring and people wouldn't bring in enchantment removal for it in a lot of environments like in standard environments this card doesn't have that benefit (laughs) so the the things that your opponents are doing against you aside from the workshop mirror basically almost entirely involve things that will destroy this card yeah so any yeah. other any other bl- any blue based deck that you might resolve this or or tinker this out against is just going to have maximal answers to it anyway. You're playing right into their sideboard cards. Well, yes and no. I mean, so one thing that that may matter is let me just say, is a tempo play is probably okay because you might just want to remove the thing temporarily, um, and then you can do something like tie up their mana. Or That's whatever. fair. That's fair. So, so I mean, you know, it's sometimes the case that, yeah, they tinkered up their Blightsteel Colossus, but if you can just prevent them from, you know, if you can just tie them up afterwards, then that play may have lost a lot of its luster. The other thing is the fact that it also does not prevent the subsequent creatures from coming into play means it's also not going to, it's not going to really stop Oath, mm. because you can remove one of the Crystal Brands, but they can just Oath up another. So it's almost entirely a tempo play against Oath, which occasionally. Yeah, I, that's why. Yeah, I don't think this is an anti-Oath tactic. I I just don't. I think I think uh, it's more of a, a mirror tactic. Interesting. Okay. I, I'm wondering if you had it in your sideboard, would you bring it in against Oath? If it's a one of and you're playing Martello, you probably would, but it's not for that necessarily. It's just something you'd like to have in your back pocket. I I there are some games in in Martello versus Oath where martello is forced to take the beatdown role and and just try to race them finding oath or to keep it off the table in which case finding oath and putting gristlebrand into play is the thing that that will put the brakes on that plan your opponent could have two lodestone gola right 
and and some yeah. factories, and they just can't afford to attack into that gristle brand anymore. This is the card that wins that kind of game. That's true. That, is, that gives the tempo yeah. play. So it is interesting as well that um, this this wipes out lodestone golems yeah. in the mirror. So and your opponent could have I don't know two lodestone golems and two metamorphs copying lodestone golems, and this will still cost four mana. Yeah, that's true. It plays interesting. It plays interesting games with the hangerback aggro creatures. If, if hangerback yeah, walker does. gets up to five, then this exiles it without giving them their flyers, and it also disincentivizes. Not strongly, but I mean, it is an anti-Ravager tactic up to a point as well. Because if they Ravager up to 5-5, five, five, which is not uncommon, then this will exile that Ravager too. And yeah. and they can't... That's interesting, because then they can't they can't just move the tokens onto another creature to avoid this. This is going to get wherever those tokens landed. That's right. So that's interesting. It, 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 once the tokens get up to 4, or 5 in the case of Ravager, once the tokens get up to 5, this is going to reliably remove them all. Unless <laughs> unless they pop them over onto Hangerback Walker and then can sacrifice the Walker in response. But that would require two Ravagers. Well, Wait, explain that. Explain if, that. They, if they had two did... Ravagers, one was big with five or more tokens on it and a Hangerback, they could sack the, the big Ravager and move all the counters onto the Hangerback and then sack the Hangerback to the smaller Ravager, thereby turning all those tokens into 1-1 one, one Flyers in response and avoiding this thing. Insane. Not yeah. entirely <laughs> avoid it, though, because all the... The counters would still go on the second Ravager, and this thing would still the second yeah, the Ravager. Modular but... still, the modular would still be lost. But yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, the modular would still be lost, but they'd still get all the the big flyers out of the deal. So, well, what I was going to say is that if you are playing a Ravager Hangerback deck that uses mm-hmm. this, what that means is you're never going to make your creatures larger than yeah. four. So you're just going to k- distribute them up to four. And yeah, stop. except for the Alpha Strike. Yeah. yeah except for the well, Alpha also, Strike. you can pump up your lands. So, and then on a subsequent turn before they're animated, you can play this. But that's a huge benefit. I mean, so if you're running the Hangerback Ra- Ravager Mirror, and you know you've got this in your deck, and you just bring, you know, you don't make your creatures bigger than four, when this comes down, the game ends. Well, that's your opponent's going to lose. Your opponent's going to lose all their stuff if they're not playing around. <laughs> well, so you're talking about basically you're talking about Hangerback Aggro versus Martello, basically, right? No, no, I'm, I'm even saying in the mirror. Like if your opponent is not playing around it and oh, you have okay. it. Surprise! It's going to be a blowout. That's that's true. Even if it's a one for one, it's a it's a your four mana for their yeah. best one, right? So yeah. even if it gets rid of a single well, ravager that's four about, four, that's still a huge benefit for you. I mean five five. Think, think about one of the matches we covered in our last podcast: the Hiromichi Yatal versus Brian. Demars. Oh wow! If Brian had had this, that would card, have been a wreck <laughs> for him. That would have been amazing. Yeah, he would have taken out Three all those bones. Gola. Yeah. <laughs> And he would have gotten the permanent mm. to tap down. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that you know that's it has a positive interaction with Ravager in that way as well, because you can yeah. hide stuff under this if you want. You can hide a lodestone under this, and your opponent swings in, and you sack this in response, bringing your own lodestone back out and chump block yeah. or surprise block. Wow, that's really interesting. You know the the intricacies that have come up as a result of Hangerback and and Ravager are so many and varied. One other thing. That since we since we should be just explicit about it, this could be. I know it seems sounds very counterintuitive, but it could be a Koldotha Tinker target. Yeah. If you're, you know, as as for certain kinds of tactics. Sure. So you could sacrifice your Koldotha to itself to get this thing to come out, or not, and and you could bring out things like you know you could take out opposing Tinker targets, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, 
it's just also worth mentioning it in that respect. <sighs> this is really, really interesting. The amount of... The, we talk about cards so often in terms of their power level, but this is not a power level thing. This is just that we've just listed off a dozen really interesting scenarios that involve yeah. this card. You know, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of that whole design approach that we talked about a long time ago. Richard Garfield, you just make simple building blocks and it's the interactions yeah. that are complicated, not the card itself. Yeah. I mean, this is in some respects a very simple, you know, fundamental card. But because of the interactions in the format, it becomes so fascinating buried um you know the other thing to bear in mind is there are so many different cards that have cip abilities like duplicant and like mm-hmm. sun sundering titan and so on and so if you can find a way to get use that to get this card to be able to use those things twice it could be extra value there as well and you can with arcbound ravager also this plays interesting games with metamorph because if you remove it as one thing it can come back as something else Holy smokes. Is it, are you sure about that? Yeah. Metamorph? Yeah. And is that also true with Sculpting Seal? It would be, yeah. Oh, no. Well, Sculpting Seal would have to be copying a creature, of course. Both, both of them would have to be copying a creature, but still, yes. Yeah. Um, well, it's really interesting. All of that conversation is fun and interesting, but I don't know if it translates into my expectations for this card to see play. I, th- we know that the Workshop Mirror is very important. We know that one of the reasons why yes. the Hangerback Aggro players did so well at champs is because they positioned themselves well for the mirror. Yeah. I don't know. See, here's the thing. I don't know if the presence of this card becomes a known quantity, does its value diminish? I think the answer is clearly <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think you, well, if, if you, if you play this card in, in game two and you steal game two because of its efficacy, are, does it become significantly less good for game three? And subsequently, in the next tournament, after it has been played once or twice, does it lose most of its value vis-a-vis the hangerback aggro matchup? I mean, I, I can't shake the notion that the answer is definitely yes. This card ceases to be as good when people know it's out there. I mean, there is a very powerful logic to what you're saying, but I can't escape the possibility that, that this could actually have a powerful feedback loop in a different kind of direction, which is, is this card becomes more prevalent could it drive workshop in different kinds of directions? Um, if that were so, it would have a self-reinforcing. Interesting. Effect. I mean, the, hang, the I, hangerback I, aggro decks are already pushed in that direction, right? All the ch- the threats would tend to be cheap, and they tend to be smaller. And their <clears throat> their value is in their growth, both vertically and, and horizontally. So I think they're already I pushed also, that way. I also think that lodestone golem is one of the most problematic cards in the format. If there was a single card that I'd like to see restricted, it would be that. <laughs> this is such an effective answer to. To that, because it, it's a card that Lodestone Golem itself does not stop. It's yeah, a good point. It's a very good point. And so, depending on how central you feel Golem is to the format, I I can't shake the feeling. So I'm going to stick with the fundamental premise that the Workshop Mirror is one of the most important matchups in the format, and in combating Workshops is really important. And I think this card would be really interesting to see if you know what if you can design it like a stack deck with this card, you know, and using hanger bags and things like that. I'm inclined to. I think this is not only playable, but I'm inclined to think it's going to be playable. You're talking about modeled after Hiromichi's deck from Champs. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm inclined to think that Lodestone is not a. It's not the. It's not at the top of the list of important cards in the Workshop Mirror. It's actually halfway down. I would say it's 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 right. it's, a, it's a useful body in terms of it poses a threat, but it doesn't have the most synergy or most value. That's why. That's why Brian and Paul were so interested in adding as many of the two drops as they could. It's because the mana efficiency was so important. I, 
I can't shake the notion that if I was to ask Brian DeMars about this, he would say it's too narrow, I think. Yeah. It's not yeah, a threat, and it's only an answer to certain threats. And so you can't main deck it. And then once you talk about sideboard space, would you board this over a crucible or another metamorph against shops? I think the answer is probably no. I think I think you and I are very excited about the intricacies of it, but I think the result is going to be just no. like Orbs of Warding was. Wherever I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go non-zero. I'm gonna say one on okay. this. I could be wrong, but I think it's gonna appear. I mean, there are too many workshop decks out there. They're increasing diversity and variety. This card has enough utility that it it's just a. I mean, so think about it this way, Kevin. Let me reframe the whole discussion, and maybe I'll persuade you this is a non-zero. Okay. What are the how many artifacts and vintage are currently played in Mishra's workshop decks? Just take a stab at a number. You mean unique artifacts across all the unique across artifacts. all the versions? It's probably twenty or less. I would say we can do the math on this after the podcast, but I'd say probably I'd take the over on that. Might be a little, might be a little lower. When you talk about some discrete sideboard cards, I might be a little underestimating, but yeah. Yeah. So, you know, whatever that list is, if there's a whole list of cards, let's say, so there's 20 to 30 that see play in current vintage decks, including sideboards. And there's a much larger list that have seen play or could potentially be played as building blocks. This card definitely goes in that larger list. Question is, does it make it into that upper tier of cards that would either be in a sideboard or a main deck? And with a large enough sample size, I think the answer is probably yes. Well, I... I can't argue with you. I mean, I, I think that's a solid assessment. I just, I guess I'm a little gun-shy after our Orbs of Warding conversation. <laughs> now, I acknowledge this well, card is totally different than that one, but our orbs, orbs of warding, conclusions orbs of we warding. were a little were very similar. Yeah, I mean, you know, that card is also an example of a card that's in that larger mm-hmm. list. But but I think that, you know, part of the issue is, in that, in that case, it was caught in a, an odd metagame cycle, right? True. Um, you know, but it, it, you know, Orbs of Warding had Warding had a pretty as a pretty insane use against Pyromancer tokens. So it is surprising that card. <laughs> we don't need to rehash its benefits here. No, no, I know, I know, but I'm just saying. I, I think the other thing is that um, I, here's another underlying dynamic. I think I think that the um, we're seeing more and more diversity among workshop decks, not just a consolidation, but diversity. And I think that the workshop imports the workshop mirror will drive more diversity, not consolidation. And so I think that is an additional reason why this will show up. Yeah. I, I think it's probably you know it may be even more it may be not twenty to thirty different <laughs> unique artifacts that show up, but maybe more than that. Yeah. It might be slightly more. I mean, you think about people playing Darksteel Juggernaut and Arcbound Ravager, Sword of Fire and Ice. It's probably it may be more than that. I mean, the, the core ones are obvious, right? Sphere resistance. Trinisphere, Lodestone Golem, Chalice of the Void, Tanglewire, and Thorn of Amethyst. But beyond that, I mean, there's a lot of other creatures. I mean, there's a lot of other artifacts that see play. I mean, Duplicant, Triskelion, uh, Arcbound Ravager. Uh, you know, right there we're almost at 10. And I think you could get probably over 30 if you were to look at the top 64 of Vintage Champs. Yeah. Well, you're not wrong. I, I just think that this card is still a little bit too narrow. I think one of the one of the tenets of cards that make that top 20 to 25 list for C play is just the either the raw power or or the versatility in multiple matchups. And this card just fails against Mentor and Delver. It's not great against Oath. It's you know it's a situational card against Oath at best, and it's not that good against Grixis except for getting their Tinker target. Um, I don't know. I just think 
it's a sideboard card to begin with, and I don't think it's going to make the cut after most people sideboard. But I say most, which means, you know, maybe that's there's that one out there. I mean, I think that the fact that it's narrow is 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 true, but to be so narrow to see no play is a totally different level of yeah, narrow. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Well, I'm sticking with zero, but I won't be very surprised if if it's greater than zero. All right, I'll say two. Okay, putting putting your money where your mouth is, huh? <laughs> Let the record show that Steve didn't need to say two. <laughs> he could have stuck with one. <laughs> <laughs> let's move, let's move on to some lands first up blighted cataract land tap to add one colorless to your mana pool five U tap sacrifice blighted cataract draw two cards now colorless producing lands in vintage is rarefied air basically <laughs> you've got your strip mine wasteland ghost quarter and ghost quarter is you know a distant third in terms of those lands You've got your Mishra's uh, Factories. I'm not counting Workshop here. That's a horse of a different color. You've got your Mishra's Factories. You've got your Library of Alexandria. And in a distant second place, you've got your Miko Koro. What am, I, what am I forgetting in terms of colorless utility lands? I'm blanking on the Buried Ruin. <laughs> there you go. That's a good example. Buried Ruin. Oh, your Dredge Lands. So your, your Petrified Field. Not counting the ones that are also utility that produce colors like, let's say, Bochuka Bog. Right. Barbarian ring, etc. So anyway, this is this is a short list, right? It, it it takes a lot for a land that doesn't produce colored mana to see play in vintage, and we can we can immediately rule out workshops as the home for this because it has a colored mana activation. So it takes even more for a land that produces only colorless mana to see play in blue based decks. You're down to just basically wists, You're down basically just to strip and waste and library. And the rare Miko Koro, and that's about it, really, realistically. But that all that said, this ability is super attractive. Uncounterable, draw two cards. Draw two cards is where it's at in Vintage, right? We play so many cards <laughs> just with the hope of drawing two cards. <laughs> we play our Gushes, we play our Dig Through Times, and obviously it's a little better than two cards. But you see my point. We play our Thirst for Knowledge. We just want to draw two cards as much as we can. This card I could see as having a home in something like, say, Landstill, where the fact that it is a sacrifice effect could produce reusability vis-a-vis Crucible of Worlds. I don't think it's good enough to replace or support the library in, in nearly every deck that plays library. I just I don't think that's possible. And I don't think it's the right thing to replace any of the existing utility lands, a la Strip and Waste, in the sort of decks that play those, like your Bugfish, for example. Yeah, the activation on this is insane. It is. It's late-game activation, so you're playing a late-game deck, which is why Landstill is the first and most obvious home, in my opinion. Landstill decks already max out, though, on the colorless utility lands. They are the home for all the colorless utility lands, between the Strips, the Factories, and the Library. Can you justify making room for another colorless land? I think if you're poss- if you think if you're playing a nearly unpowered blue-red landstill list, similar to what Shockwave has played online and what he played at Champs, you might, you might. And if you've got the sort of list that runs, say, Barbarian Ring, that's the kind of slot that you could swap out for one of these. And I do think it would be one of these. Right. I think that's the only home. I really do. It's not going in Grixis. It's not going in Delver or Mentor or Bug. It's not going in 
Oath, I don't think. Looking at Brian Kelly's mana base has, has thrown my perception of Oath mana bases into a cocked hat. I don't, I don't think even Brian Kelly would put this in Oath. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, so I think this is possible target for Landstill. Landstill that has Crucibles, not all Landstills do. And that's probably it. And that deck is quite rare. Despite how well-represented it was in the top eight at NYSE, the deck is still a, a tiny sliver of the metagame. And this would probably be a, attractive to only a tiny sliver of those players. Even if a short list of Landstill aficionados really dug this card, I think yeah. at most we'd see one appearance. Yeah, I think the problem is that Landstill has a maximal right now amount of, of, of sort of off-colored lands. Mm-hmm. Because it runs factories and wasteland, mm-hmm. it's really hard. I mean, there's a real premium in the entire format, but especially Landstill with getting, you know, the right colors at the right time. And the, these lands just don't offer enough benefit to justify. I mean, for example, suppose that you know one out of ten games you activate this thing for for late game value, but at one out of ten games you're mana screwed because you have this. You know, you would conclude yeah. that it's not worth it. Yeah, and you're completely right. And it's not it's pretty common in this day and age for landstill lists, which want as many of those lands as they can possibly shove in. It's it's pretty common for those lists to shave either one wasteland or one factory because the colored mana sources are just so so shy. Yeah. Yep. All right, that having been said, I think that's the right place for it, but it's not going to make the cut. I'm going to go with zero. Yep, me too. Let's talk quickly about the next one then, which is in the same family, Blighted Fen is tap to add a colorless four black tap sacrifice target opponent sacrifices a creature so a little a little cheaper at five total mana to activate as opposed to six compared to the blighted cataract and it affects the board so you get an edict out of the deal which means it's slightly faster and it's an uncounterable creature removal which can be big game in certain matchups i mean that's the real deal against against uh, oath it's really good against grixis and it's could be good at cleaning up the board against Delver. It would almost certainly, again, have to go in a late game deck, though. You're talking about maybe Grixis Landstill. Grixis Landstill is possibly the rarest breed of Landstill in this day and age. But, I, I, again, I think it plays a similar role to your Barbarian Rings in that type of list. Yep. yep. Uh, but, the, again, the colored mana sources are at a premium, especially in those three-color Landstill lists. If you've got the sort of landstill list that's running Deathrite Shaman, like what David Williams brought to the VSL last time around, then you might be able to justify one more colorless source given your extra mana sources via Deathrite Shaman. So again, I really think that's the only possible home, and it's right—it's barely on the cusp of playability, and that deck is a small sliver of a small sliver of decks. <laughs> so yeah. I don't think this is going to become a staple by any stretch, so I'm going to go with zero. Me too. Okay. And that brings us to the end of our review. Sorry. Yeah. No, I just wanted to point out a couple things. One is that um, Rise of the Eldrazi, I, I should have said this earlier, but Rise of the Eldrazi was, in retrospect, and I think even at the time, according to my set review, it is empirically one of the weakest sets for vintage of all time. Mm. Probably, Probably in the top, 10 worst sets and possibly top three or four worst sets of all time. I'm serious in terms of cards that contribute to the vintage format. Mm-hmm. I think the only card that really has seen any more than marginal play is Emrakul. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's contribution is incredibly anemic. And I think this set, while not terribly exciting, certainly not as good as Magic Origins, 
is is certainly has better prospects than Rise of the Eldrazi did. That said, we've only predicted Radiant Flames, Green Warden of Mirasa, Kiora, and Aligned Hedron Network, and very Should low numbers a, on each of those. Well, let me add a footnote to the Aligned Hedron Network. I've been doing a little bit of math while, during the analysis, and I've counted over 30 card unique artifacts that saw play in the Vintage Champs workshop decks in the top 20, mm-hmm. not counting the Red Splash deck. Right. There was a that had Solemn Simulacrum and uh, you know a number of right. things, but there there are a lot of different artifacts that see play in the format right now. Ones that we didn't mention are Mulrod, Porcelain Legionnaire, Staff of Nin, Batter Skull, uh, so sure. on. So um, the other thing I wanted to just mention is the 12th place workshop deck actually has Orbal Warding. Nice. I hadn't remembered so, that. <laughs> so it didn't appear in a top eight, but Stephen B- Steve Bickle has Orbs of Warding in his sideboard. So I think that's close <laughs> enough. Well, having 24 points at Vintage Champs is, in my opinion, yeah. a far more significant achievement than, say, making top eight at a 16-player tournament, some local tournament throughout the nation. So, yeah, our our measurement process is not universally perfect. <laughs> well, you had actually predicted more orbs of warding than I had. Yeah. But I, but um, you know, I think I think we, uh, I think Steve Bickle saves us there. <laughs> I don't know about that. We'll see. I think that we're going to see a diminishment in the the appearance of Coldolta Forge Masters, broadly speaking, from the workshop family of archetypes of deck lists. I mean, and I think that what that's going to do is also diminish some of the silver bullets that we're talking about. I think Orbs of Warring and Witchbane Orb are the kind of cards that will diminish in their play because of fewer Forge Masters. And I think Aligned Hedron Network is along those lines. If this card had been printed two or three years ago, it probably would have seen more play than it will today. It is such a true, yeah. true, such a great name, and I love the flavor text too. I'm not someone who usually raves about flavor text, but that's what does it say? Good. I don't have it up. It says, <laughs> "The last hedron slotted into place, locking Ulamog in an infinite loop of binding energy." It's just perfect because we've been talking a lot about infinite loops, <laughs> <laughs> but also, but also, you know. It goes to the point that we were making about using this card, right? Yeah. That that you've got all these uh, interactions of Arcbound Ravager and and uh, Hangerback Walkers, and this is the this is the last piece that comes into play, wipes out the board, and then you just go infinite, right? So, <laughs> nice. Go infinite in the game, yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd like to provide a little bit of listener feedback from our last episode because we talked last episode about a number of things from Champs, and we did call out to our listeners to provide us some feedback on a couple of particular points. One of them was a rule scenario involving Rolling Chang and the the missed trigger, quote-unquote, on Tanglewire. We got a couple of good responses in our email about that specific scenario. And I want to bring attention to them because we didn't have all the best information to provide about the, the proper judge calls in that scenario. We got responses from Lachlan Saunders and Lyle Waldman, both of which were, were nearly identical in their, their response and their, their attention to detail. So thank you to both of you. The gist from both was that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you can't, 
you can't go quickly through the, the stages of a turn such that you de deprive your opponent of the opportunity to make plays and or acknowledge triggers. That's a, that's a given. The issue with the judge call present, that is in Roland's case, hinges on whether or not that happened. If it did happen, meaning if, if the active player went too quickly through their upkeep, then the floor judge's ruling is correct. You back up, which means putting a random card from hand on top of the library. You put the Tango Wire trigger on the stack. That's the floor judge's ruling. And if there was not sufficient time given, that is the correct ruling. But if there was sufficient time given, and it, that's not what happened, if Roland truly missed the trigger, then the head judge's ruling is, is correct. So we have two different judge rulings, both of which are the appropriate ruling given their perception of how the upkeep, the yeah, how the upkeep progressed. The, 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 I think what's so troubling about the situation, and I, I want to give you more of a chance. I actually think that your summation of their emails may be overly simplistic because, <laughs> well, they, well, I mean, the reason I say is because there's a lot of meat to what they said, and I thought one of the points was not only so setting aside what happened. And setting aside the rule and setting aside the philosophy behind the rule, <laughs> they both made the point that you cannot rush your opponent. Yeah. That is, you can't, like, you know, sort of go upkeep, upkeep, draw main phase land in, in, in order to prevent your opponent from putting their trigger on the stack. They both made that point. But I don't think that was the main point they were making. I think they were both, I think the gist that I took away, or the main point I take away from their emails, is that ultimately it's a factual inquiry that's really difficult to determine without observing it yeah. and and i think what's so troubling to me is that given the fact that the issue is a factual inquiry you i would be more inclined to defer to a floor judge mm -hmm. because they have the initial contact with the players they have the initial interaction with the players and ask them what happened and any other spectators they could if they want i guess you know so it's a little bit to me like you know a federal judge sitting in a jury Sorry, federal judge sitting in a major, uh, you know, a major trial, hearing all the facts, hearing all the testimony, you know, and then making a decision not really on the law, but on the facts as the law is applied to them, and then having an appellate court overturn them without having the full sort of scope of facts presented to mm -hmm. them. So certainly they have the record, but that's not the same thing as hearing people's testimony, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, that's a little bit troubling because. You know, I would be more willing to credit the floor judge's interpretation. And so whenever you have a dis disagreement between a head judge and a floor judge, I would be more inclined, in, if the question is disagreement over the facts and not the, the law, so to speak, not the rule, then I would be more inclined to trust the person who first interviewed the players. That's Well, that's we, uh, all we have is, I mean, for our purposes, for this example, all we have is one player's account at this point. And so yeah. we, we can't speculate any further on yeah. terms of what really went down in the scenario. But they but they, they also said more than that. I mean, I think one of them, so one of the judges is from Australia and wasn't there. Was was one of them actually there? No. Or no? No. So, I mean, ultimately, unfortunately, we'll never know exactly what happened. And there's, I think it may be troubling to people because especially Magic players want things to be black and white, but there is an element of subjectivity here. <laughs> I mean, both, you know, the underlying philosophy is now that, you know, in a sense, all triggers are optional in the sense that if things have progressed to a certain point, the judges have within them the right to say, we're not going to rewind, yeah. right? Um, and this comes up all the time. It comes up with Chalice of the Void. It comes up with Mentor triggers, Young Pyromancer triggers, and certainly Tangle Wire triggers, among others. Yeah. 
And so I think vintage players really have to be very cognizant and careful. Workshop players certainly have to be careful, but they're not the only ones. But what this also brought to my mind, Kevin, is the, the inherent subjectivity of how far you go back. Like, you know, and so the question is of whether you rewind is some subjective mixture of factors, including how much of the game has elapsed, mm-hmm. whether hidden information has been revealed, mm-hmm. um, whether there have been sort of major plays or whatever, and whether the opponent was given a reasonable opportunity to put their trigger on the stack. So, you know, I the thing that would trouble me the most would be if we develop a different set of heuristics or rules of thumb for different cards. So, for example, suppose I go, you have a tangle wire in play, and, and I go upkeep, draw, main phase, and I go play a land, and you go, you go judge. He didn't get he Stephen didn't give me a chance to put my tangle wire on the stack, yeah. right? Okay, the judge is probably going to allow you to rewind and put it on the stack, yeah, right? Probably, but. What if it was the exact same situation, except except instead of Tangle Wire, you had a young Pyromancer in play, and you played something, you know, you cast a spell, and then you know you look, you know, whatever. I don't I don't know how the situation might happen, but it often happens that um, you know you'll cast a spell, take partial action without announcing the trick the trigger, and then you go, oh, whatever, trigger, you know. Yeah. Like how far do you have to wait now until? You can't rewind to the pyromancer trigger. You know, it's you see what I'm getting. I at? do, and there are, there are lots of different thresholds depending on the nature of the trigger, and the category that it falls into because exactly because triggers have different effects on the game state, of course, and and I, I don't know. There have been reams written on different categorizations and and what constitutes missing it. And exactly, and so what I'm saying is, what if you miss it, but you miss it by like one spell? Is that too late to rewind it? <laughs> Young Pyromancer is not technically an optional trigger. It's a mandatory. I mean, doesn't. I mean, it, in the most technical sense, it does not say you may put a token into yeah. play. It says put a token into play. Yeah. So shouldn't. So at what point is it too late to rewind? Yeah. Right, because that's that's the question, right? So so if I have a Young Pyromancer in play and I say and I play Gush and I draw two cards, is it then too late to put the Pyromancer trigger on the stack or to resolve it? Yeah, it is. It is probably, yeah. but. But how is that so materially different than going upkeep, draw, you know, main phase land? Well, I I see, see what, I do see what you're saying. I think in the Tangle Wire example, there's an issue of control over the flow of the game because in the yeah. issue, the Pyromancer example you gave, the same player is controlling the trigger and the flow of the game. Let's replace though the the gush and let's just say I have a bolt or a plow. So there's no hidden information that's revealed that, that changes. No, I don't. It's not, it's not about the information. It's about who's controlling yeah. the pace. It's about when yeah. when you choose to announce so, that spell and then resolve it, you have chosen to pass the window for the trigger. But when your opponent have, controls untap, upkeep, draw, you're not choosing to pass. I I have trouble with to me that just seems too inconsistent mm. because the, the the amount of time that elapsed now is differentiated based upon the kinds of trigger, who controls it. You see what I'm saying? So Yeah, so you're saying there's incons- if you measure just by time and, and a little bit by the significance of action taken, that those scenarios yes. are functionally the same. Exactly. And there, it, doesn't seem, it, it does seem inconsistent from that perspective. I'll grant you that. Yeah, and we're applying different sort of sets of rules of thumb or heuristics to different kinds of triggers. It, it just becomes such a mess. I, I think there needs to be a clear, consistent rule or philosophy for a can you rewind and b um you know 
what it, how do you actually rewind to, to yeah. you know to get to I genuinely, I genuinely think that the rules that are in place and, and the the tournament rules and then the instruction guide are clear. They're just not simple. <laughs> well, well, let, let me let me challenge your definition of clear. So clear, you you can have a lot of criteria that are clear to articulate, but that doesn't mean they're they're clear to apply or easy to apply because, you know, even if you have say like five criteria for whether you should whether for the judge to decide whether to rewind the game or not, applying that criteria basically becomes a balance of factors test where they have to sort of weigh the factors in a subjective way. So the criteria themselves can be clear, but how to apply them could could result in two completely different judge calls depending on the judge. Yeah. I I don't find that to be satisfying at all. Well, I think that the current condition of our missed trigger rules specifically are the result of a lot of critical analysis and some testing and some mistakes that were made in the past, multiple mistakes made in the past. And I think one of the primary reasons why we've arrived at this, this complex result is that it, it yeah. minimizes the, the negative incentives as best as possible. And it reduces the 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 bad sportspersonship that's that was available in in prior configurations. You may be right, but I don't think that's what animated the rules philosophy change in early 2013. I think the larger animating factor was not the incentives for poor sportsmanship and all that stuff. I think the main animating factor was that people were just forgetting triggers and getting game losses and warnings and game losses, yeah. and they didn't want to publish players for just being. They didn't want to punish players for being forgetful that just didn't seem fair in some way yeah and so i don't think it's about what you said i think it's about what i just said well except that the motivation to make the change initially in 2013 was then undone it was a matter of weeks or months that they they came up with a a third solution and i think that what you're saying was probably an overarching motivation but the version they released the community tore it up. A lot of players said, "No, this is this this incentivizes the wrong behavior," and so they arrived at another solution, which is what we live to with today. And it had to get I more complicated. The, I thought that we both agreed that the most recent philosophy change was in 2013. There were that's when they announced. There were two philosophy changes in 2013. We are dealing with the most recent one of those. There was another one very proximately to it that everyone responded quite negatively to, and that's why we got the one we got. Okay, yeah. well, I was speaking of the most recent I, one. I understand. The, my point is, is that you and you and I are coming out from slightly different perspectives. I'm saying we do have a complicated system right now. I think it is as clear yeah. as possible, while disincentivizing the least. Sorry, while incentivizing the fewest number of bad beats, kind of trying to get your opponent, kind of things. That was the problem with the prior, the prior two conditions. Yeah. That, well, the prior condition, the one immediately preceding this one, was that it it, it punished players too much in the other direction for for yes. not missing triggers basically i mean i mean there's no there's no doubt that the so there were a number of different i've been up there were a number of different philosophy shifts i mean i couldn't remember i can remember where you know there was a philosophy where people were only responsible for their triggers mm-hmm. and then it then that shifted to both players are responsible for the triggers mm-hmm. and the fit and you have warnings given to both players for failure to maintain game state mm-hmm. you may even recall in the legacy Grand Prix that I top 32'd, where there was a situation, it wasn't a trigger, but it was a meddling mage that came into play at the Flash Grand Prix, yeah. um, where 
I forgot and my opponent forgot to name because there's a lot of stuff on the stack or going on at the time. The game state was a little bit complicated. He played Meddling Mage and forgot to name a card. And I was locked into playing Metal, Mystical Tutor on his end step. And there were other spells that were played around it. But um, we both got warnings for failure to ma- whatever the warning yeah. was, right? Yeah. Even though he, he controlled it. And to me at the time, I was blown away. I was like, it's his card. Why should I be responsible for his yeah. thing? But, you know, so the shift is, a, you know, in philosophy is akin to that. It, it's an attempt to not punish people for being forgetful. Mm-hmm. But it also has perverse incentives within it. it. So one of the perverse incentives, which I really despise in Vintage, is the way it interacts with Chalice of the Void. I have seen so many different players treat this differently, but Chalice of the Void, I've heard some players say, and one prominent player in particular, who I will not name, (laughs) who says they enjoy the Chalice of the Void game. And I interpret that player to mean that he or she plays Chalice of the Void and will um, intentionally, sorry, he or she will intentionally play spells into the Chalice of the Void to see whether or not his opponent will call him on yeah. it. And, and my interpretation of that is that's cheating. Mm. Because the game... So it's absolutely true that if I play a spell into the Chalice of the Void and, my, and I've forgotten about it and my opponent also forgets about it, it will resolve if the game has progressed to a certain point, right? Yeah. But if you do that intentionally, that the intent actually, in my opinion causes that action to fall under the definition of cheating. Hmm. Well, but, that, that might be your opinion, but it doesn't. <laughs> I just want to well, be clear. That's not, but that's not what the judge who emailed us said. He said that I'm going to have a, a strong talk. One of the judges who emailed us said, I'm going to have a strong talk with the player who plays a, a spell in the chalice. And if he basically determines that it's intentional, he's going to send them having ice cream. That is DQ. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's correct. Okay, well, that's what the judge... I'm just saying that's what... Yep, right. I, I agree. Do you, why, why do you not think that's correct, though? Because you can't have the intention... Because you're not responsible for your opponent's triggers, one. True. And, so, and also, your intentions don't influence your opponent's triggers. I can play Mystical Tutor into Chalice for one quickly and forgetfully. I can play it slowly and contemplatively i can play it menacingly and threateningly all of those get countered if my opponent remembers it (laughs) i I mean if i'm trying if i'm trying to do something to distract my opponent from the chalice like announcing a spell and then immediately distracting them okay that's one thing but if you just bold-faced say play the spell into this chalice and let's see if you remember it that is a legal play and let's also not forget that there are plenty of legitimate reasons to make that play, assuming the spell will get countered. No, absolutely. So I, I the intention, to, I, just, I mean, just, me just ask, playing I mean, it with the notion of maybe it'll, it'll resolve is not illegal. Let me add the caveat. So assume that there are no sort of beneficial triggers that would, you know, for example, you might play as... Yeah, I know. There are lots, There's of, lots reasons of reasons. Play, like you preordain into a chalice because you have a pyromancer yes. play. Or let's assume also that you're not playing a spell in order to bait your opponent's force, yes. you know, you know, knowing that they may have forgotten. So that's a legitimate reason to play something into it. But, but it strikes me that, you know, that if you intentionally, in my opinion, <laughs> if I were to play a spell into a chalice, no, you know, for one, and I'm playing a one casting cost spell mm-hmm. and my opponent forgets that strikes me as cheating. Well, because it's knowing, but you're saying it's not, in your opinion, your reading of the rules is there, is there are the rules are the floor rules clear on this point? In your opinion, 
uh, as clear as they can be whenever you start talking about intent. But okay. I, I mean, intent usually involves doing something illegal. You have to understand that intent comes into play, broadly speaking, when you've broken the rules. That's where cheating comes in, is did you intend to break the rules? Break the rules Playing right. a spell into a chalice isn't breaking the rules. You're, yeah, so you're saying because it's not breaking the rules, the intent is irrelevant. Yeah, it, because, if, that's yeah. why I said if you're trying to do something shady to make your opponent forget, that's, that yeah. is breaking the rules. If you're trying to distract them, if you're waving your left hand while you play the spell, you know, <laughs> if you yell at them, if you say, hey, there's Elvis, you know, that's yeah. unsporting conduct potentially. But just bold-faced just saying, play this spell. Your chalice is sitting on the table. Do you choose to trigger it? That's not illegal. But it used to be. <laughs> well, well, not illegal, but it used to be totally mandatory. That's your point. Yeah. Now, it wasn't illegal. Yeah. It was just that the counter was mandatory. It, it, I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> no, the, the, the previous, I mean, before 2013, the rules were that not only, so you would be given a warning for failure to maintain game state or whatever the I rule was. Yes. And therefore, if you intended to play it in there, you would be cheating because you violated, intended to violate the rules. So one action, the same action, two years ago or three years ago would result in a DQ. And today it's like perfectly fine. I mean, that's just such an absurd <laughs> juxtaposition of results. Well, it, it's only absurd if you take it in isolation and don't take all of the systems into account. You, you should, you yourself have said in a number of different contexts that this is the result of many different overlapping and inter interrelated issues. And as I said earlier, we have arrived at the, the lesser of many evils, basically, as the result. And this is well, one of the offshoots. I, I'm willing to concede that's possible, but I'm not willing to conclude that that's the case. I mean, I think that there are a lot of evils that emanate from this. And, and this is that's my point, right, is that this change in rules may have solved one problem, but I think it's created others. Yeah. And I think that there's, uh, there are inequities on both sides. And, and part of the problem that I feel is that, you know, this is just the reality of magic, is that magic has to have a set of rules that encompasses all formats, but one size does not fit all. Mm. The set of rules that may minimize the evils in other formats may actually generate or disproportionately generate more for vintage. Well, that's interesting. I'm, I mean, it's, it's certainly conceivable, and uh, I believe that there is no such thing as a perfect missed trigger uh, resolution system. There is no simple... <laughs> Definitely not simple, but there's no uniform set of rules that is implementable, I would say, that actually avoids all possible bad scenarios. The simple truth is is that triggers come in so many different shapes and sizes, and they have so many different varying impacts on the game that, that the rules can't be uniformly good for dealing with them when they're missed. Fair enough. I guess it's to be continued. We'll see how this issue evolves, if at all. Yeah. It's certainly going to be an issue for vintage players to be aware of and monitor and figure out how best to adapt to. That's possibly the best takeaway that we can have from this discussion, which is all vintage players out there should consider the decks they play or the people they commonly play against. And Tanglewire is up there in terms of everyone probably plays against Tanglewire, regardless of your meta. But other ones like Oath of Druids and other critical things like Young Pyromancer and Mentor, study up on the... That what categories those triggers fall into, what the kind of penalties are for missing them, and what constitutes missing them, because the answer is subtly different for each one. In closing, I think we should do what we normally do for our set review and ask our audience, what card from Battle for Zendikar do you think is best in Vintage? 
Thank you for listening to episode 48 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We did not escape for the game! <laughs> <laughs>